Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week, I'm joined by master sommelier Vincent Vinimaro, who is also the wine director over at Press uh, in St. Helena, which is up in Napa Valley. And he's also a co-owner of Wine Chips, which is a company that pairs uh, potato chips that they make with uh, wine. Vinny is the third master sommelier that we've had on this podcast, and he has a super unique and fascinating story. He passed the master exam when he was like in his early 30s or something ridiculously crazy like that, which is just super impressive coming out of college and kind of knowing exactly what you wanted to do even though he didn't really know what he wanted to do at the same time. So we get into all that, kind of how he bounced around Napa Valley, doing tests, working multiple jobs, commuting to San Francisco, learning from Master Psalms that he was able to connect with, taking the exam. He's part of the fateful class that uh, went through the exam, the master exam, and then had to retake it because of the information leak back in 2018. So we talked about that too as well, what his kind of current role is in the organization, other stuff that he's working on as part of kind of the head of diversity and education and stuff like that too as well. So super fascinating conversation. It's about two hours in length, so I won't uh, hit you guys with too many front end uh, details either as well. Uh, it's kind of all there in the episode. Quick shout out to Tanya over at Suited Hospitality for helping set this up. They do some of the press stuff for Mark Zimmerman and Gozu. So once that episode came out, they kind of knew about us and reached out, hey, we had some people that'd be interested in coming on the podcast. So Vinny is one of those. And uh, it was an awesome conversation. It was great to connect with Vinny. Um, like I said, super fascinating career to be able to achieve everything that he's achieved in such a young age is just pretty remarkable to hear everything. So it's an awesome conversation. So looking forward to you guys listening to it again. As usual, you can follow us on Instagram. We're at Spoon Mob. We're on a bunch of other social media, but mainly use the Instagram. You can follow Vinny too as well. It's at Vinny Chases Wine is his Instagram handle. Also follow the restaurant at Press Napa Valley and also at Wine Chips uh, is the other account there too as well. But Press is open seven days a week for dinner. So you can stop in whenever, uh, no matter what day you're up in Napa Valley. If you're over that way or um, not too far away, maybe in San Francisco, it's about an hour. Sonoma, kind of the same distance too as well by car, but you can get from San Francisco to Napa basically by ferry too as well, and then just take like an Uber. So it just kind of depends on what you want to do. There's a few different options. Make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast, whatever platform that you're using to listen to podcasts. We're on all of them, but uh, Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, those are kind of the big ones. Just search Spoon Mob or use the link in our Instagram bio or link uh, for one of the posts that we do for any new episode of the podcast that comes out. Make sure to check out our website too as well. Profiles for all of our guests are up there. Links to the episode, photos, contact information, um, all that stuff is there. You can contact us through the portal on the website too as well with questions, comments, feedback, all that stuff. So, But without any further delays, here's my conversation with Master Sommelier Vinnie Morrow, who's also the wine director at Press in Napa Valley and the co-owner of Wine Chips. Thanks again for coming on the podcast and taking some time out of your day. I know you're pretty busy. You kind of do a couple different things right now. I mean, you're a wine director at Press out there in Napa Valley. You're also involved with the Court of Master Sommeliers. Uh, you hold a position there too as well currently, which I want to get into kind of what you're doing with that uh, and what you're kind of doing at Press because, you know, you've recently had some awards and accolades that have come your way. And you've had a very interesting career too as well. So that's why I always kind of like to start at the beginning with everyone. You grew up in Phoenix and you kind of got involved with wine. It was really when you were in college, right? You wound up going to Sonoma State University. 
Yeah, exactly. So I went to Sonoma State. A, it was a great choice of a school, but I really had kind of run out of options to go to places out of state. I originally thought I was going to Alabama A&M and as a 17-year-old kid, I'm like, great, college is done, check, I know where I'm going. And and that deal uh, kind of fell through, you know, in what we would today call uh, ghosting or just kind of like there was just a complete radio silence after the initial conversation. And I then had to have knee surgery as well from an injury uh, that I sustained in early 2005. And one of my youth coaches had um, left our team a few years prior to go coach at Sonoma State. You know, that was the draw and the school was beautiful. The team was incredibly friendly. They, you know, they took me right in during a recruitment trip and that felt right. So I ended up doing that instead of going to Alabama. And uh, who knows what life would have been like had it been the other way around. Was Alabama going to offer you a soccer scholarship too as well? It was a full ride to A&M between soccer and academics. And that's, you know, the best that my parents and I could have hoped for. That's all I wanted was to be able to continue playing and get a degree and hopefully go pro. That was what my 17-year-old self just assumed how life was going to pan out and doesn't really happen that way. Prior to winding up at Sonoma State, did you have any experience with wine in the sense of your parents were big into it or you took any sort of overlap with any classes that you ever had that kind of, you know, if science classes skewed into that or anything? Zero. It was occasionally in the fridge in the form of a box or a jug. And that was usually for uh, family get togethers. Uh, a good portion of my, my father's side of the family originally from Cleveland, but slowly over time, they migrated out to uh, Phoenix after we did. You know, it went from being just a couple of people at Thanksgiving to by the time I left for high school, it was, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas get-togethers were sometimes north of 100 people, and it was just pretty crazy. And those One things, of those you, things just you just picked up, picked up to get ready, was, get ready was of cheap wine from the grocery store, and that's all I had really ever encountered until uh, moving to California. Yeah, there's a big Ohio... Southern California, Phoenix, Arizona connection. The only time they really talk about it is like when the Ohio State football team is like in one of the bowl games out there. It's like a second home game or whatever for them. There's always that connection between those destinations and everything. So how did you wind up getting into wine? Because, you know, you're going to Sonoma State, you're playing soccer, you're going for like a business degree, right? Where does the wine kind of start factoring into, you know, your career choices and, and going that direction? It was really a function of, um, I wouldn't say running out of options, but I hadn't really narrowed down anything by the time I had uh, come up on my sophomore year. And I went in as pre-chem because that was the closest thing to pre-med. I dropped that after the first semester. I thought maybe going pre-law, even though there wasn't a law program there. So coming up with some type of criminal justice or sociology slash business degree to get ready for law school. And I really wasn't into that either. And I figured I'd just focus on a business degree and be able to still have flexibility to do other things uh, from there. During those first two years, I had my first experience with wine, which was awful. My mom visited to help move me into my dorm. And my girlfriend at the time was there and she went wine tasting. And I asked her to, you know, I was excited, bring something back for us. We'd love to like try it. And I mean, it took us probably 15 or 20 minutes to get that bottle of wine open with a butterfly wine opener. We always had one in the drawer at home growing up and I never knew what it was for. I didn't even understand. Once we finally did end up pushing the cork in, we tasted it and we dumped it down the drain. I just didn't understand why anyone would like that beverage. So 
you know, that was the first experience with wine. And then it was about a year later, uh, my sophomore year, Thanksgiving, had just turned 19. And I had another taste of wine. It was so different from the first experience. Um, I'm sure the wine was different. I'm sure I was different. And I kind of uh, had this looking outside of yourself experience. You see yourself having dinner with your family and you're enjoying a glass of wine and something clicked right then and there. It didn't necessarily mean that I wanted to spend my whole life doing it, but I felt like, oh, this is a part of growing up. This is what you're supposed to do. And it just felt right. So at the end of that sophomore year, I had to pick a concentration within the business degree. And I figured, well, I'm in wine country. I kind of like wine. My mom really likes it, which is a big plus for me. My dad is getting into it. And it just felt like, well, I'll have a business degree and I might as well at least focus on something while I'm in the area. And it'll just kind of get me to the next step after college. And I was still, again, set on playing soccer at that point. So I wasn't really focused so much on the degree decision beyond business. It grew from there little by little after uh, sophomore year. You're in college, I think, right? And you wind up working as a tasting room ambassador and also doing some retail sales for Ridge Vineyards. Were those conscious choices that you decided to do or were those just part of the degree program? Like how did you wind up doing those things? The former uh, goes back to, uh, to my mom again. So as her interest in wine grew and she continued to visit two or three times a year, she started going to different events in Sonoma, like barrel tasting, which happens um, usually two weekends in March. She started coming out for the Winter Wine Festival, which happens in January, and then usually one or two times between the spring and fall to watch me play and then go wine tasting. I was the designated driver uh, for most of that, and I just was exposed to a culture that was so different than obviously when you're 19 or 20 and going to college. And there are vineyards, you know, less than half a mile away from the school. And then all of these world-class wine regions within a short drive. And it got me thinking. And that was actually, my first job was because of my mom. She met a, a winemaker's wife, as the story goes, in the, which is now closed. It was called the Jimtown store, which is similar to, for anyone that's visited Napa and maybe gone to an Oakville grocery or a Soda Canyon uh, deli and store, which is here in Napa. Those types of like, you can get a sandwich, you can get chips, you can get a bottle of wine, just a quick stop while you're wine tasting. And she met the winemaker's wife, uh, Desiree Hart, talked about me and said, oh, I have a son that's you know looking for an internship and he's going through the wine program. It led to me helping John, the winemaker and the husband, bottle by hand a few barrels of wine that he felt weren't quite up to the quality that he wanted to put a label on. So he was just bottling it for friends and family. So I, it was kind of like this blind meeting. I went out to the warehouse. Uh, I was only 20 at the time, so still wasn't able to apply for tasting room positions. And I met him. We spent about three hours together one morning. We're bottling wine. We're just talking through life and such. And it was about Six months later, I had just turned 21. I had more or less finished that part of the business degree. And they opened up their tasting room the day of barrel tasting. So they uh, they gave me a call two days before and said, we're expecting our license. We're hoping it goes through tomorrow so that we can participate in barrel tasting. And we could sure use help if you're available. Well, because of my mom, that was my first uh, true wine slash hospitality job. And I eventually would help them maybe one or two weekends a month to pour in their tasting room. That was then the um, 
the stepping stone to getting into Ridge Vineyards, which I applied for a few months later. And that was my first full-time gig, which was a pretty vast education, just being a salesperson there or working in the tasting room, because the special thing about uh, the labels for Ridge Vineyards, and they they really haven't changed since day one, is that they put every variety on the label. That might not necessarily sound special on its own, but when you're working with vineyards that are 120, 130, 140 years old across California that are were planted in a field blend fashion or what European immigrants did in the 1800s and 1900s, where they just plant a vineyard. They're not saying, this is where I want my Zinfandel to go, and then these rows are my Petite Syrah, and then these are my Pinot Noir. They just planted a vineyard, and they picked it all, and they made one wine from it. And uh, Ridge really specialized in sourcing from those types of vineyards. So when a guest walks in and says, what is Alicante Boucher? What is Carignan? What is Mavendra? I had to know the answers to that. And through researching those grape varieties and where they come from and why they're special and what they taste like and what they add to a blend or what they taste like on their own, it was just this like blessing that I could not have even imagined when I first applied for that job. Getting that position was integral, sort of the next step in my in my wine career, even though I was still in college at the time. Once you graduate college, what kind of happens from there? You know, I'm coming up on the last uh, semester of college. I ended up staying in six years, not because it took me that long to finish, but for a period in time, I had declared a double major in computer science so I could stay in school so that I could participate. And, you know, I was the president of a fraternity. The term on that was spring to fall instead of fall to spring. So it didn't follow the academic calendar. And I kept extending myself an extra year so that I could stay involved in that. And because of that, I declared a double major in computer science. And that was during the turn of the economy and budget cuts. And it was it was just this really challenging time to be graduating as well. All of those things contributed to me staying in longer. And that's the long way of saying that also, I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do after graduating. Through one of the assistant winemakers at Ridge Vineyards, I had an opportunity to go to Bergerac in France, which is 30 to 40 minutes east of the right bank of Bordeaux. I was taking French as well. And one of my best friends, we were supposed to go together and work harvest. And I figured I needed some other harvest experience in between that. Uh, So in 2011, I went back home to Arizona to work a harvest in uh, Elgin uh, County or Sonoida, which is Southern Arizona. You're about, you're maybe five miles from the border of Mexico. So each time I went back to Phoenix to visit my family on the weekends, I would have to go through a checkpoint, you know, before you hit Tucson and then get to Phoenix. So it's pretty, uh, that was an interesting time. I uh, worked about six weeks for a winery called Sonoida Vineyards. It's one of the oldest in the area, uh, founded back in, the, I think, the late 70s or early 80s and showed a lot of promise for uh, Burgundian varieties uh, in the early 80s and, and had a lot of nods from some global wine uh, figures at the time. And I think they just, they had some challenges over the decades and other, in other fashions, but it really is an incredible place. And that was just blindly sending inquiries to wineries in Arizona to see if someone could take me for harvest because that was 2011 and the harvest in California was so far behind. So I was actually able to go to Arizona, complete harvest start to finish and get back to California almost four weeks before harvest started here in Napa Valley. Um, I worked that year at Round Pond, which is in Rutherford, right in the heart of Napa. 
you know, most people, they get to work Southern Hemisphere and then Northern Hemisphere, and that's really the only way to cover uh, two harvests in, a, uh, in an annually. But this was a unique opportunity, and I seized it, um, figuring that could sort of be my temporary holdover until I could get into studying to be a sommelier or being a bartender or just something to get me more into restaurants and, and or into um, bartending or being a song. So you, even at that point, you wanted to go into restaurants instead of going down like the winemaking path? The, the idea, the seed was planted while I was at working at Ridge Vineyards. Someone, some guests, I feel that they were probably in the industry and they were visiting from outside of California. Maybe they were, they weren't, but they were talking about uh, sommeliers. I think they were one or were a buyer for a restaurant. They were general manager and they were talking about sommeliers and uh, speaking about the examination in particular about master sommeliers and sort of the mysticism behind it and like, you know, slaying the mythical beast, if you will. And just, you know, the way, the way people talk about things, they may not kind of fully understand, but admire. And, uh, you know, there's still certainly a lot of that uh, for better or worse, but uh, I was just immediately intrigued and I had applied to different um, restaurants in Sonoma County, hoping that I could get an entry level position. Uh, I applied to, um, sort of this upscale bistro called, I think it was called Petite Syrah in Santa Rosa, which is now closed. Um, I applied to John Ash and Co. as uh, to try and get like a food running position to then be an entry level, like assistant som. And I was just willing to do anything. And I couldn't, even with wine experience, couldn't find a job to get me into restaurants. But I was, I was set on at least taking the level one and then taking the level two and and my future wanted to sit for the MS. I just figured that was the most logical next step. In that same breath, I wanted to better understand winemaking so that when I would be speaking about it in the tasting room or in a restaurant floor or whatever hospitality position to be able to more comfortably convey the cause and effect. I really had this feeling that sells something, especially if I'm passionate about it, that I would want to know how to do it, or I'd want to understand the process and not be talking about something that I had no clue how it functioned on a very basic level. So it was important to me to do both. And um, I wasn't really sure exactly the track, how that was going to go. And that's why I did the couple of harvests. And um, I never, never did make it to France for that harvest because I ended up really leaning into the sommelier track. So when you kind of find out about the sommeliers and, and the exam, did anybody kind of explain like the different you know levels to you at that time or like because you mentioned you know you wanted to sit for the master did you know what all was going to kind of have to go into getting to that level at that point or were you just like yeah that sounds cool more of the latter that sure sounds really challenging where do i start like where do i sign up it gave me this uh, sort of a loose framework or blueprint for you know indefinitely to continue learning to continue pursuing something versus up until that point, I had really been, okay, what's the sort of the next thing I should do or be trying to do? And it also gave me the freedom to do all of the other things I wanted to do, like work harvest or get a better sense of winemaking in pursuit ultimately of, of sitting the that exam and just knowing it wasn't really a deterrent when people would speak about how impossible it was and how much work went into it. And I think there was just some naivety on my part that was beneficial at the time. And uh, yeah, really didn't, um, there wasn't anyone to tell me what the next step was or how to go about it. I mean, I signed up for the level one 
after that harvest in 11, I was living in Calistoga, renting room at the time, which is not where you want to be when you're 23 years old. It's a it's definitely a place you'd maybe want to raise a family or retire or visit occasionally, but it's not a it's not a place to to be when you're 23. So after harvest, I moved to the south end of Napa Valley into the town of Napa proper. And I had transitioned from harvest at Round Pond to working in the tasting room because they had a salesperson, uh, a hospitality host leave right around the same time harvest finished. And I already had that experience. So it was just a natural transition. And one of the places I was frequenting each week with uh, my best friend who I was supposed to go to France with was a, was a wine bar in downtown Napa that um, no longer exists. It was called 1313 Main and uh, befriended the people working there and um, knew that uh, a chunk of the team was leaving right around the first year anniversary. And I just, I was in their ear all the time. Like, how do, what do you need? How can I help? What do I do? And I was still saving um, at that time to go to France. I was supposed to go in 2012 for harvest. So I was working at the winery in the tasting room. And then I was working three to five nights a week at the wine bar once I eventually started, you know, 90 to 100 hour weeks, just trying to save money was just learning so much uh, at the time. And that's what really helped give me a little bit kind of put the more of the framework to actually getting doing the things to get prepared for the intro and doing the things to get prepared for the certified. And that's by nature of luckily meeting one person, the chef at the winery, his name was uh, Eric Masco. He uh, he was a certified sommelier, but he'd been a chef by trade for almost two decades and had sat his advanced examination uh, twice and had just missed theory uh, barely and really was an incredible mentor to me in terms of um, supporting me through that process and uh, being able to be in that environment of food and wine pairing and the way he would speak about it and including hospitality in that, and then getting in the reps at the wine bar as well, where we had probably 40 wines by the glass. We had around a thousand different unique skews to choose from. And it was just, I was drinking from the fire hose and I was studying and working and studying and working. And it was really the best possible scenario that I could have um, hoped for at the time. I didn't know that those things were possible while I was still at Ridge, but I kept like, okay, what's the next step to try and get me closer? And hopefully the next step after that will reveal itself as I'm in that current place. So there's definitely some, there's some serendipity, there's some luck, there's just um, putting yourself in the right uh, place, time, position. I was I definitely benefited from that in that part of the journey. So you spent like a year or so, I think at 1313 Main Wine Bar and Lounge. And then you wind up joining the French Laundry, right? You wind up being, I think, a seller sommelier and like a food runner, back waiter, expediter. How did you wind up getting in there? This was a good gut check moment. You know, I had uh, during that year at the wine bar, I had pretty quickly for, you know, the gory details we won't go into after about five months was the wine director. And this is someone that is coming out of a winery and had only been there five months and had no management experience. And all of a sudden, I'm the wine director and um, one of the managers. And I'm, you know, not even 25 at that point. So still very young and uh, and, and immature uh, in retrospect. But there was a part of me that knew that and knew that being at a wine bar that only served cheese and charcuterie and was really more California focused than anything else. 
Would it be impossible to get ready for the examination? What did I really want long-term? And for me, that was, it wasn't, I want, yes, of course you want financial success and, 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 and things like that down the line. But to me, the North Star was the examination as well as best setting myself up for uh, being successful in food and beverage and hospitality and, and what creates the strongest background for that in tandem with preparing for the examination. And I, there was a lot of correlation there. And I just knew that being at the wine bar wasn't going to do that for me as far as understanding restaurants, as far as really learning the things I didn't know, I didn't know. And I knew there was a lot out there. So it was a progressive thing. And one of my best friends, Brian Lipa, at the time was a captain at the French Laundry. And he had moved out from St. Louis. Uh, his wife, uh, Michelle, was still back in St. Louis. So he spent um, most of his days off just kind of bouncing around town and hanging out. And one of the places he came to uh, was the wine bar. And he was friends with one of the other sommeliers that I worked with. And I got to know him through that. And we eventually became friends. And I was really starting to realize that I didn't want to be a manager. And I wanted to focus on being a sommelier, but I knew I needed restaurant experience. And I just, I wanted to push myself. And I, you know, so I started getting into Brian's ear about, hey, like, how do I get on the wine team at the French Laundry? And again, naivety at the time, you know, maybe might've come off as arrogance or just, I didn't know what I didn't know. And I thought you could just apply to do that. So he connects me with uh, someone that's a good friend now, um, Lauren, who was the concierge there, but who handled um, inter connecting interviews with managers. And the first time that we actually had dinner together, all together as friends, and I asked her about it and she emails me the next day and said, that there's a food running position open. And if I'm interested, she can set me um, set me up with an interview with one of the managers. And again, naivety strikes. And I said, well, you know, maybe can I do it a few days a week so I can do both? And she said, no, it doesn't work like that. I passed on the first opportunity and was hoping that things would sort of get better or get more towards what I was looking for professionally uh, at the wine bar. And ultimately they didn't. And um, the second opportunity came around uh, in late January of 20. 13, it would be stupid of me to pass up an interview at the French Laundry twice. Like, you know, I just have to put myself out there. And I did. And I left a job where I was the wine director. We did have a GM at the time. So it wasn't like I was having to do so much of those things anymore. But a job that uh, for, for my age and time and for I was, I paid very well. Um, I was walking distance to work. And I left that to go work almost twice as long and be a food runner at the French Laundry and take a, a 40, 50% pay cut to do it. And I just knew that I, that I had to at least try. It was going to put me, just put me in front of things. I didn't, I didn't know that I knew I, I wanted to be better at. And yeah, for the first three or four months, it honestly felt like I was, I was kind of drowning every day. I was just trying not to make a mistake, like not even worried about doing things right. I'm just like, can I just not make a mistake? So I don't, you know, get pulled aside and talk to about this or that. Um, because I didn't, not so much because of the um, the fear of retribution or being told I made a mistake, but because I didn't want to impact guests like that. I didn't want to make a mistake that then affected their experience. And that was kind of the the, the ultimate driver for me. Yes, the, the other part of your question is I went in as a food runner. I did that for about six or seven months. And in that process was asked to, uh, if I was interested in expediting. And that was one of those forks in the road where 
It really has nothing to do with wine. It meant I would be in the kitchen 99% of the night and I wouldn't even see the dining room. Whereas at least when you're food running, you can step into that serene environment in the dining room and then go back into that intense environment. And it's a good challenge of playing in two different worlds and like completely unrelated to anything I wanted to do. But I felt like it was going to teach me things that I thought ultimately in the long term would be helpful. And I just... I couldn't ignore the challenge of it, even again, even though um, it wasn't necessarily directly contributing to succeeding at the exam. To be trained as an expediter, they wanted me to train as a back waiter to better understand uh, just flow and timing, which is is crucial to any expo. Eventually became an expediter in December of 2013, which is never an easy time to do it, but that's definitely one of the hardest times because that's uh, truffle season. So we had three menus. We had the black and white menu, which alternates black and white truffles. Then you have the vegetarian menu, which is always offered. And then you have the standard menu. And by nature of there being more menu options, you would see tables that would just order all three just because, not because there was an allergy or anything. So like I had nightmares for for weeks and weeks, even after I stopped expediting of just the ticket machine constantly going and just the anxiety you would feel when the first ticket comes in and then you can't mark it fast enough because the next one is printing and all this food needs to walk. And it was such a mind trip. You know, I expedited for about four months. And by the end of it, it was, it was kind of a game. It was really, it was really fun in the sense that, um, having that short-term memory and moving tickets around and trying to keep pace with guest experience and, you know, trying to do all the other things that go into it, especially at a place of that caliber was, um, it was a challenge that I'm uh, eternally grateful for. But ultimately I, that was the beginning of 2014 and I was signed up for the advanced exam and I had zero floor experience. So it was like, this has to change. And the seller sommelier at the time was a gal who had zero wine experience. And that was really, um, and, and she's a, was a close colleague of mine, mentored me through a lot there. And she's like, look, Vinny, I'm a, I don't think this is, is for me. You know, I got to do it for a few months. I'm not really into wine. Like, I just want to go back to being a chef. I don't think I'm staying in Napa. So you should kind of, you should kind of put that in the, in the ear. So we we kind of collaborated on it and we both approached the GM and the wine director and I trained as the seller song for one day just so they'd like let me see how it would feel. And I was just like ear to ear. I couldn't um I couldn't stop smiling and it was like it was the best thing. So yeah, I'd been there for a year before and and done a, a wide variety of positions before I was able to become a seller song, which really you don't need all of those other positions to succeed as a seller song. But they allowed me to do so much more. You know, I would work uh, private parties during the summer when we'd see, um, you know, two or three private parties outside. And I would be the psalm and the back waiter for those. And that's like, yeah, you want to talk about time management. That was pretty interesting. And I did that for about a year. That gave me so much exposure to the best wines of the world, the labels, the producers, the pressure of serving those um, and everything in between. And it ultimately, you know, the it made the advanced uh, examination for me uh, very fun and and felt like a, a positive challenge as opposed to being afraid of it and feeling like I had zero experience going into it. And I just it was another point in my life where I realized like this is what I want to do, like fully committed to this. And you know, two years prior to that, sitting for the introductory, it feels like the the master sommelier examination was so far off. But every time you get a little bit closer, and then 
if you zoom out over um, a couple of months, uh, a year, two years, as opposed to being so focused on it day to day, you realize how much progress uh, you've made. And, you know, at that point, I felt like, okay, I think I believe that I can do this. And it's not just this sort of pipe dream. And I think I'm, if I continue on this path, then I'll, I'll just get there eventually. So that was, uh, that was the tears at French Laundry. And that was, um, when you wind up leaving the French Laundry, you go to Gary Danko. Was that so you could be on the floor more? It was an interesting time at uh, French Laundry. This is the beginning of 2015. We were finally closing for uh, renovation, the major kitchen overhaul. It was about a three-year project when the hope was that it would be done in 12 months. And gosh, like nothing has ever done that fast, especially in California. We ended up doing this pop-up at the Silverado Resort uh, in Napa, which was sort of the the blueprint for um, a tack room, kind of high energy steakhouse, um, big band, loud music, just, you know, soignee, but fun service. And that was supposed to be six weeks. And then it got extended to an eight month project. And my friend, Brian, who was uh, leaving to um, pursue the wholesale side, he ended up being the national sales director for Stagland Family, iconic winery here in Rutherford. And I knew that. And, um, you know, I approached the wine director about like Brian's leaving. You know, I've been in this position for a year. I've been with the restaurant for two years. I really feel, you know, I passed the advanced examination. Like I'll do anything. Like I just want the opportunity to be on the floor and I love working for you. And we were both in agreement um, that that was the next step. And unfortunately, it just the feeling and, and the timeline of that of that happening just didn't seem like it was going to. And if it did, it was going to be, you know, a year or two years or I had a trajectory in my head and I needed to follow it. And I really did want to be on the floor at the French Laundry and have that to be a part of my trajectory. But we just uh, just didn't see eye to eye on that same timeline. And there aren't a whole lot of opportunities in Napa to work with a wine list of that caliber. I mean, really, the only other one would have been Meadowood. Um, and unfortunately, that no longer exists, which is really sad. And um, and Auberge de Soleil, which wasn't really, um, they may have an incredible list and a great, great cuisine, but it wasn't um, kind of in my wheelhouse. And it was connected through Chris Gaither, who's now um, a very close friend. He was the wine director at Gary Danko at the time. And we had a mutual friend connect us that knew that I was looking to to make a move and and was was studying hard and wanted to be on the floor because my intent was to sit for the master sommelier examination the following year. And to me, I needed to be on the floor. I had to be on the floor, getting in repetition, getting not exposed to just the labels, but the the idea of helping people find wines, which was something I didn't get to do a lot of it at French Laundry as a seller sommelier, because you're more focused on on administrative and back end. It might not seem like it at first, because San Francisco is an hour commute each way. Since I was studying for the theory portion of the master sommelier examination, I figured that, well, that's two hours a day. I, I don't have anything else to do but drive, so I might as well study. I might as well turn it into something that is is beneficial and positive versus seeing it as just simply a commute and losing two hours out of my day. So I, I was brought on as a sommelier, but I didn't work a floor shift there for four months. 
And I had to go through every position, train every position, work in it for a few weeks, prove that you know I was um, was capable because the sommeliers there did everything. You might take an order for a table, you might seat guests, you might run drinks, you might clear a table, you might market. It's just everyone was expected to to be capable uh, of doing everything, and that's the background that I came from out of French Laundry, and I loved it, and I was all in. But it meant that I wasn't even on the floor until four or five months in. But that was, uh, yeah, that was. Um, uh, Gary Danko is a, has a, a big part of my career. And even after I left, um, I went back a few times and worked moonlight shifts. And I still have a great relationship with, uh, with Chef Gary and with the whole team there. I think at the same time, you wind up doing some overlap at Binu. Is that correct? Or is that just something that's out there that everybody kind of alludes to? Not initially, but eventually, yes. I'll give the sort of the snapshot. So two years at from Sondry, March of 15. I shifted to commuting to Gary Danko. While I'm at Gary Danko, I have my birthday dinner at Bennu that year. So that was 2015. That's where I first, um, I had met Yoon Ha before, who's another master sommelier, but not in that setting. And he was someone that I looked up to and admired for a long time. He was the former wine director for La Toque, which is an incredible wine list here in Napa. And after having, like, while having dinner there, let alone after leaving, I just thought that's where I want to be. How cool would it be to work there? The cuisine, the pairing, like that is precision at, at the absolute highest level and, and, and serenity and grace. And where, you know, at Gary Danko, you want to have that, but Gary Danko was a hustle and it was so much fun for, you know, for a variety of reasons. And I loved working there, but it was just, I knew it after eating there, I knew it was that's the level I needed to be at or that I wanted to experience. And in many ways, didn't get that full experience at, at French Laundry because I wasn't on the floor. So it was still this yearning for me to be in a position like that. That was also serendipitous because I, I got a phone call after eating there uh, from a, another master sommelier who was friends with you. And he says, how was your dinner? And I'm thinking, how did you even know I had dinner there? Like, who told you? I didn't, you know, I wasn't posting about it. It led to a conversation with you and um, having coffee. And I just, uh, I blindly accepted that position. I didn't know what the, they didn't even have to tell me what compensation or anything like that was. I just, I knew I wanted to work for Yoon and Chef Corey. And I was, again, willing to do anything and sacrifice it. So I started there in March of 2016. I started there the day after I passed the theory portion of the master sommelier examination. So going from studying for that for so long and then having to shift into a three-star restaurant and train in two weeks and then be on the floor, it was a challenging time. All the while getting ready for the uh, service and tasting portion of the examination, which was uh, eight weeks after that date. Uh, I worked there for a year because of some uh, just life choices that I had to make um, that ultimately dictated what I needed to do professionally. I left Bennu after a year and that wasn't really the plan. Our initial conversation, it was to kind of move up within the company. That's what I wanted. But the the commute was just, it was killer. It was, you know, there were days it would take an hour and a half or two hours to get to work and many times longer to get back because of um, construction and traffic. And it was a lot. And to do that to for a three-star restaurant, that was just, um, yeah, it was brutal. But ultimately, I um, took a, a remote job working for Guildsum or the Guild of Smellies, which you know, it was really a dream job for me because it meant I got to work in education. I got to connect with the entire community of sommeliers. And it meant I got to sort of not necessarily dictate my own hours, but get to work from home and work during the day, which at the time 
was something that I that I had to have based on some personal things that happened. And um, I was married and, and got divorced. And all of a sudden, the reason for working from home and working remote, all of that dissipated. And I was just like, I, I don't want to do this, at least not as my focus. I'm just not ready for it. And I was like, right back, even while working that job from home, I went back to the floor at both Gary Danko and Bennu. So I went from having one job to three jobs. So that's where the they they all blended together. And that was um, like March of 2017, where I had a full-time job from home working for the Guild of Sommeliers. But then at night, I was still doing two, maybe three shifts at Gary Danko a week. And then the occasional shift or a couple of shifts at Bennu, if they had a sommelier out of town, because that was just five shifts a week. And if you have one person gone, there's just one team. So when one person is gone, it really has a deep impact, whether it's a a food runner or a glass polisher or a line cook. It doesn't matter if one person's gone, it affects the entire team. So Chef Corey was uh, and you and were really gracious in allowing me back to just jump back on the floor of a three-star restaurant. You know, if you've been gone for a few months, it, it doesn't necessarily, um, those opportunities don't happen uh, very often. So I had a lot on my plate in 2017. That's where some of that blending of the jobs comes from. But the year prior, you wound up competing in the top Som Young Sommelier competition. You actually won it, right? How did that happen for you? So there used to exist, uh, as you mentioned, a competition called Top Som, and it was put on by uh, put on by Guild Som, as well as um, I believe Som Foundation had a, which is a nonprofit arm, a scholarship arm of Guild Som, as well as uh, sponsored by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits, and it was a competition that they had one portion called Young Som, so anyone under thirty, and then. If you had one young SOM or you were over 30, you would compete in just what was top SOM. So two different uh, competitions in tandem. So I had just started at Bennu, right? I had just passed the MS theory and I was preparing for service and tasting for the master small examination, which was in May of uh, 2016. We had just moved homes. I had started at Bennu. I was commuting. I was studying. Every day I wasn't working, I was visiting a, a sommelier, usually trying to seek out a master sommelier to pour me a flight of wine. Like I was just, I was in the city on both of my days off, usually doing service practice with sommeliers from San Francisco that were preparing. So it was just two months of nonstop. And the competition was a part of that. So it was actually, Yoon was in Korea teaching a course there. So I had to run the wine service that whole week by myself, up to and including the Saturday night. I left from San Francisco Saturday night at like 1.30 in the morning, got to the hotel in Santa Rosa right around 2.45 or 3, got my stuff together at the hotel, um, basically took a nap and then had to do the blind tasting for Top Song the next morning at 8 a.m. And then service after that. And then I can't remember if it was a one or two day thing, but it turns out that I... Um, that I won. It was just like this uh, moment of elation. I think there was a, a theory portion that you did uh, that you did online. Oh yeah, you, I, there was a regional competition. So that's what it was. So I competed in regionals, which was in um, Los Altos, which is about an 45 minutes south of San Francisco. Um, so I won the regionals. And then the national final was in Santa Rosa, which is about an hour, hour and 15 north of San Francisco, all while I was living in Napa. So that it just happened to fall, I think, two weeks before the the master examination. So I did the competition, the nationals, and um, 
I won. That was pretty wild. And then the Shen to register was the following year in 2017. So were you using that competition as kind of a, initially as a preparation method, but then everything kind of fell in this same like couple week window. And it was just kind of like, that wasn't supposed to happen. Exactly. One of the the things with this trajectory in my head over the, over the years was, okay, like, it's very difficult to think about a challenge like the master sommelier examination as point A to point B when you're at the first step. So what are your checkpoints along the way, right? Like, how do you measure your progress or how can you do something where something else might sort of help you measure or not necessarily validate, but just give you a sense of where you are? In the beginning, it's like, well, the intro and the certified are so close together. So those are kind of your points of measurement. And then in 2014, when I took the advanced examination, that was also the first year that the court of master sommeliers implemented what is called the advanced course. And it's a prerequisite three-day seminars and tastings that give you uh, a look into how deep you really should go into studying regions to then be prepared for your examination. But I had already been studying for about a year and a half at that point after the certified. You know, it was a good checkpoint at the course to say, okay, wow, they went over Germany and I just finished like five weeks of studying Germany. I'm like, great, like I'm doing exactly what I need to do and and need to replicate that for every region. But then between the advanced and the MS, it can be really difficult to have those checkpoints and it can be really daunting. And for me, I had committed to is about a year and a half syllabus, an 18-month syllabus um, of study. And that's a long time to not have any uh, any checkpoints, any sort of, okay, like, how am I doing? Is this okay? Without sort of like, uh, I mean, you can create review examinations for yourself and study with other people, but I wanted something else. And I come from a sports background. So when I found out there were competitions, it was just natural. It's like, yeah, like, let's see how I do. One of those is the Shende Register, which is a gastronomic food and wine society that originated in France, but it's it's a global organization. They have the essentially the same exact competition, but it's only for young psalms and young chefs. So anyone under 30 can apply to compete in that. And there's a regional competition, there's a national competition, and there's a global competition. In 2016, I competed in the regionals, but I lost to one of my friends who ended up going on to win the Worlds that year, who was also studying for his MS. But then I won the regionals for the top song, that competition that year, and ended up going to nationals and winning it. And then the following year, I competed again in the Shen de Rodeser and went on to compete in the Worlds. That's a long way of saying I had those two competitions as checkpoints for me. And I did that intentionally. Um, I kind of molded my study a little bit so that, okay, let me get to a point and then start reviewing so that I can then compete and just see for all the things that I've studied, if that pops up, if that region or country pops up on the exam, how did I perform on on that part and not let areas and regions and things I hadn't studied those competitions like really affect my sort of psyche. It was more like, I want to take this just to see, am I on the right path with what I'm studying right now? It ended up, uh, kind of tidying me over until I was actually sitting for the, the the master examination. With those competitions, is it everybody gets the same blind tasting or is it similar to like your CMS exams where there's a theory portion, a service portion, a tasting portion? Like how is it kind of structured? For Topsom, the theory was uh, 
of, I believe it was a written, yeah, we sat down and we did a written examination and then everyone got the same questions and you turned it in. So you're all just taking theory, sitting kind of next to each other, but separated by, I don't know, six or eight feet. The, the same could be said of the, at the time of the advanced examination was written and you'd just be very far apart from the next person. You'd get the same exam, but it could be, um, different order of questions. It could be different questions. Uh, there's there's a whole like range of possibilities, but for the most part, the core is the same. It's just not always, there are, mul- there are multiple copies of the examination so that, you know, you're peeking over at someone, it's not really going to help you. Um, but then once you get to the master, it's all verbal. So those competitions, once you get to the national level, global level, they're very helpful because they are verbal at every portion of the process. And it helps you just be in a pressure, pressured environment that can, you know, replicate some of the pressure you'll have at the, um, at the master sommelier examination. So when you pass the master, which I think is 2019, right? That's when you pass. What was the most challenging part for you out of the three components? Uh, tasting by far, you know, the, uh, I felt that with theory that was entirely under my control that, uh, if I, stayed consistent and did um, that bit of work every single day, had a rhythm and, you know, followed a syllabus and had a cadence. I could at least get to a point that I felt that, okay, everything that I've studied, if I follow the process and I know this sort of sphere of everything that I've studied in and out, then if I get asked a bunch of stuff outside of that, that I'm unsure of, then, you know, I won't necessarily be upset. I'll just have to expand my, expand my sphere of knowledge, so to speak, and it'll just push me to get better. But there wasn't as much sort of uncertainty by the time I finished my syllabus that as far as like what I had studied and what I knew within that. And I was just hoping that it lined up with the type of, you know, that I'd studied enough and deep enough that the knowledge um, kind of panned out with service. Um, I did feel like that was a, a strength for me, not to say that I was going to pass, that I knew I was going to pass anything that was thrown at me, but I felt more degree of comfort because, uh, again, coming from a sports background and just the butterflies and the anxiety that before the game starts and and being in motion, that's one of the reasons I love uh, being in a restaurant and being on a, on a team. It just, I was excited for it. I really was. And I had a Actually, I had a lot of fun during all of my service examinations, but it was tasting that I knew from day one, like from before I even stepped foot into the intro. It's like, how I'm, I'm not a good taster. I don't know how to become a good taster, but I'm just going to practice and I'm going to try to approach it the same way I approach um, studying, having a syllabus and having sort of a plan of attack. In theory, you get... Um, you don't really get feedback, but it's meant to be this quiet, silent room and you get asked a question and then you answer. And that's just sort of the call and response. In service, you get feedback sort of like, um, because it's interactive, it's playful. It just feels like, it feels like real time. But when you're sitting there tasting something and nobody's talking for 25 minutes, it's a really weird, it was a really weird thing for me. Um, not that I was looking for feedback, but it just um, it just allows you to get into your own head because it doesn't sort of have that human error component or that person to person component that you have in service. Uh, And that's where, that's just where I struggled, you know, that sort of that monkey on each shoulder that's saying, well, are you sure? What is this? Or what is that? And that was really, um, that was the difficult piece for me. And oftentimes it wasn't that I didn't, I didn't have the skill set to 
to get the wine correct. For me, it was the mental aspect of it and the um, all the preparation outside of wine tasting the wines, so to speak, that was my biggest hurdle and challenge. But then once I did figure that piece out, it made the, it made tasting so much more, um, I wouldn't say easy, but it just, it allowed me to demonstrate the, I'd been in a blind tasting group, sometimes multiple for seven or eight years at that point. It's like, it wasn't about more repetitions at that point. It was about putting your the best version of yourself in that room allowing your your sort of auto system to do what it's supposed to do and getting your getting your conscious system out of the way when they tell you you pass is it more of a joy or relief that you won't have to do anything again or what's the feeling like when they tell you oh it's it's so many things and um you know 2019 was unique uh, as far as what i was feeling because you know, we didn't, we didn't touch on this, but, you know, really, really unfortunate uh, incident in 2018 where um, some of the tasting uh, examination details were, were leaked to uh, a few individuals. And because there's, there's really no way to know where all of that information went, um, it ended up being invalidated. And I had passed in 2018, you know, it was, um, oh, you were one of the people that passed. I had Justin Moore on and his, partner she same boat passed in 2018 and then she had to redo it the following year yeah being there with both of them in, in 18 and then going back and you keep swinging and you know that's a I think it's a whole a whole separate thing but you know in 18 the feeling was well you know it was my third try and I finally got to the point that I couldn't get to in the first and second try for a variety of reasons. But I remember like just saying to myself in the mirror the night before, no matter what happens tomorrow, it's all good. And just feeling that. And it wasn't fake. It was genuine. And I just, I felt okay being myself. Um, whereas the first two years I didn't, even on the surface, there was all this success. There was all this kind of forward progress behind all of that. It was, it was not the case. You know, by the time I sat in 2018, I was just a much happier person. I was very... Um, this is the journey. And if I don't put it together tomorrow, like it's all good. I'm just excited. I'm happy. And I'm going to be surfing as soon as I get back to California. Like I was just so like, actually by stepping away from tasting throughout the course of 2018 and really just giving it the time and attention during the space that was dedicated to it, whether that was, you know, Saturday mornings or during my practice sessions after work, I was, it wasn't occupying all this mental space for me outside of when it was appropriate to do so versus the years previous. It was just, I was uh, like obsessed. It just took over my entire life. So when I passed in 18, I, I kind of think it's funny in retrospect that we had uh, gone out the night before, like pretty, um, we had had a great time. There's a whole contingent of us that did. And I mean, results were at 10 in the morning and I walked through the door at 9.58. And mind you, I was staying a five minute walk away at another hotel. So, you know, I like barely made it in the door um, before they sort of uh, started announcing. And I was the first one to get pulled in and they sat me down and they tell you, you pass. And it was just like, oh my God, like you're, you're still a little, you know, you're completely out of it and all this elation and relief. And, you know, for me, it was this, uh, it was kind of delayed onset as well, because I was the first one to go in and there were 60 some people testing that year. And when I came out, I just uh, give a bunch of people a hug. And I was kind of like, 
just took a moment to myself. And then I turned back around and was just waiting to hear all the other names. And there were a lot of them that year. So it was just like, it's just un- unbelievable. It makes me think of like watching, uh, like watching the Warriors play. And like, like the other night, Clay Thompson just hits like six of his first six, three point shots. You're just like, this is like insane. It's just this like elated feeling and relief. And it's, um, you know, at that point, since I was very okay with either result, obviously wanted to pass. It felt like, okay, like this is how I envisioned it. This I'm, I'm prepared for life to go on. I'm prepared for this oncoming sort of emptiness of no more study. Like I have all of these other things in my life that I really enjoy doing. Whereas had I passed in 16 or 17, I don't know that I'd have been able to say that. And I, I think I very much would have felt um, a big low or a big trough coming off of that high. That's all to say that in 2019, um, when I sat down and told me I passed, so I was just like, you're goddamn right. Like, done. Like, this thing is done. It's like in the horror movie when uh, they slay the villain, but then he comes back and you're like, are you serious? Like, I'm still not dead. You know, Jason or Freddy the Krueger come back and just like, and then they finally kill it. And you're like, all right. Like, there, there's not even like so much positive that comes from it. Whereas the first time you do, it was just like, oh my God, this positive, like I was walking on clouds for weeks and weeks and sunshine felt bright. I went back to work after I flew straight to work from the airport. In a way, it also felt like I didn't have a lot of emotional response to give to it at that point, but I also didn't give it a lot of emotion going into it because that's what I knew was going to hold me back from passing again if I went in there with too much emotion. So it's like, you know what, like it is what it is. And it really sucks, but I'm going to take it. And if it doesn't shake out, then I'm coming back next year and I'm just going to, I'm going to keep going. But right now I can't give this any more like emotional currency. I just, I just don't have it. And I refuse to try to give it. It'll be debilitating if not. So I was kind of at this very, just the exam was just very black and white for me at that point. It didn't really hold any sort of mythic, mystic uh, aura about it the way it did in years prior. When you pass, I think you become the fourth Black Master Sommelier in the world at that time. Did you know that factoid at that time, or was it somebody had to tell you? And and when they did, or when you found out, what did that kind of mean to you? There are four, and I was was the third at the time. I didn't know. So when I passed in 18, um, I remember there was an interview with uh, 750 Daily, and they had reached out, and that was one of the points that they wanted to touch on. So they did, and that's how I was like, oh, okay, so there's three. Last year when Chris Gaither, who, if we backtrack to Gary Danko, when I worked for him, and then we became very, very close friends, his wife, Rebecca, passed in 17, and I didn't pass, and much of our group passed that year. And then in 18, and it was just like, so I remember, yeah, it's an individual thing, but it takes a group to get there. And that was three, three or four. And it wasn't really until after the fact where other people were asking, like, oh, yeah, I, I think there's a few. I knew of Carlton and Thomas, but I didn't know if there were more beyond that. You know, after you pass, I think at that time you were working as a wine director at 165 in San Francisco, but eventually you become the wine director at Press in St. Helena. So how did that opportunity come about? This is post- you know, you're a master sommelier. How'd you wind up at press? The world uh, kind of shut down. This is, it's only been three years. It feels like so much longer than that. So the world is clearly uh, deteriorating very quickly, especially in San Francisco and in terms of hospitality and reservations and the world shuts down. And, um, you know, I'd thought that I would stay in San Francisco for a very long time, or at least be on the perimeter and continue to work there for 
until I was ready to like retire to some like surfing community or something. So the pandemic happens. Uh, I end up with my girlfriend going to work in Germany that year, work harvest. So I did get a European harvest in. It just wasn't in France. During the process of getting moved out of San Francisco, putting our stuff in storage and wondering sort of what the next step would be after Germany, uh, Chef Phil, uh, Philip Tessier, who's a, a partner and head chef of press, I'd worked with him at the French Laundry. And he was one of the first uh, chefs that I met there during my kitchen trail of the first uh, and my first week there. All kitchen servers or food runners do a two-day kitchen trail where you're basically the commie's assistant. Like you're not even commie. You're just, you follow a commie around all day and they just give you tasks. And um, I remember those two days very, very vividly. But Chef Phil is one of the first people I met. And over my two years there, we we became just just great colleagues and mainly through um, playing soccer. He's a big soccer fanatic and um, his kids are too. And we uh, connected over uh, being the French Laundry soccer team where there's a, there's an annual barbecue for the entire Thomas Keller restaurant group. And there's a soccer tournament, each barbecue. And I'll tell you that with Chef Phil at the helm, like we had practice, we had soccer practice. And this is while he was preparing for the Bocuse d'Or, which I mean, he that was 100 hours a week for two years straight for him. I mean, I, the general manager at the time was a former colleague of mine from Gary Denko, who I'd become pretty good friends with that uh, also at that point. Yeah, Matt Phil from Sondry. And then fast, uh, this was in 2013 to 15. And then fast forward to um, where I had about a three hour meeting with Chef, just literally really catching up on the past uh, seven years at that point. And what his vision was for press and um, which a lot of is being lived today and um, up to and including hoping to find um, other locations to open another restaurant and really creating a hospitality group and not just a single restaurant. For people that haven't spent much time or visited Napa, not a lot changes here very quickly, especially in terms of the types of restaurants we have and cuisine that we offer. There's a lot of the the same things for better or worse. And it's it's very difficult to open something here or be it zoning or licensing, et cetera, to open or to build anything new here. And there's not a lot of turnover. So you know, there's not opportunities to start a new restaurant or to evolve something that is pre-existing. The prospect of working with Chef Phil again, of working with Cole, the former GM uh, uh, that I worked at with Gary Denko, to do that in Napa and to kind of get out of the city, which we felt like was in a really bad place and we didn't see hospitality coming back in any meaningful way for a long time. So it all, it just felt like the right move. And um, that's, uh, so I've been with press for two and a half years now, but it's a conversation that's almost three years old uh, from when it first started. Did you change much with the wine list when you joined like the existing wine list or was it more of tinkering or how that kind of worked for you? Yeah, I was really hesitant to, to change anything. Uh, to be honest, when I started, um, I feel like there's so much history and sentiment in the four walls and so much work that had already gone into the wine program. And it really was um, the most consistent thing about the restaurant. You know, the the, uh, the cuisine had gone through its ups and downs, and that's why Chef Phil was there. And I just felt like I don't have to change anything right away. What is the benefit or the advantage in that, right? And also, trying to be cognizant of since I had worked and lived in Napa prior to that, knowing that you know, the local community is very strong here. And the last thing I want 
is for people to think, oh, here I am coming back to Napa. Now I'm a master sommelier and I'm just going to change everything as soon as I arrive. Like it doesn't do anyone any good as far as like changing the focus of the program or making it more expensive or things like that. Like I was very sensitive to like, I didn't do any of that. But what I did do was just try to exist in the space and get comfortable with it and try to understand how can we evolve and grow more positively to better represent the community. I mean, the and I worked one service and we shut down for six weeks for curbside pickup. So there was also that I had plenty of time to do it. It wasn't so much changes, but it was just tightening up um, more of the back of the house stuff, organization, inventory, how things were listed, kind of cleaning up some of the dead inventory. Like there was a lot of little things, I feel like, just to better present what was already there. And I mean, Kelly White and Scott Brenner, um, Kelly was a former colleague at Guildsom that we worked together. So we have a good relationship. And she was the first person I called when I got back stateside as far as advice on what would you have done had you stuck around? Like, where did you see the program going? I just felt this these massive uh, shoes uh, and res- to fill and this responsibility to keep the program great and just find ways that they're not going to take away from that. And then, you know, eventually after we reopened in 2021 and had been open for a few uh, months is when we started to kind of build back the program. And we just doubled down on the original vision of focusing on Napa Valley wines, winemakers, Napa Valley vineyards, and tying everything back to that, sort of like our mission statement in a way. Yeah. So there really, again, there haven't been so much changes as there have been other than back a house of running of the wine program, other than um, we did build a completely new wine list that that is more of a, a read or something you'd more like read through and enjoy versus the iPads that we use in the on the floor in the restaurant to be more efficient during service. When you have 250 guests in a night, we have both. And so we spent about, this was one big change is I spent about five months recreating the wine list to sort of better tell the story of Napa Valley, but that's something for people that want it. It's not, it doesn't go to every table blindly. Fast forward two years or so last year, you guys were awarded the wine spectator grand award with that. Obviously you did some tinkering uh, with the wine list since you've been there for a couple of years. So was that always a goal you had to build a program that would be able to bring home a grand award? Was that something that you wanted to do or is that something that just kind of happened? Definitely more of the former, but it wasn't necessarily this this thing that I had to check off. It was just I had worked with Grand Award Wine List prior and knew that yeah, those opportunities to actually create one don't come up very often. And it was more of a curiosity for me. I had wondered why Press had never received one in the past because a lot of the metrics checked out as far as the wine program. I mean, you have to be in a certain, more than anything else, uh, a base level, um, financially speaking, to be able to um, carry the type of inventory and unique SKUs to even put yourself in the ballpark for consideration. And uh, press certainly checked a lot of those boxes and it was more curiosity to me. So, you know, one of the first people I reached out to just like when I started at press was uh, reaching out to Kelly and just asking why had they applied for it and why if and why they felt they they didn't receive it and the sentiment was that because it was a regional list and you know they they tried really hard for a few years and then they just felt like it wasn't um it wasn't panning out and you know the the definition of uh, insanity is that if you keep continue to try something the same way and get the same result 
but you're expecting something different. So I, I tried to see it with a fresh set of eyes and said, well, how, how could we possibly present this any different? Because the only thing that could change would be whatever person or persons is judging for uh, the Grand Award, which I'm not aware of who does that. And um, you, I don't think you're ever really made aware of that. But I figured either they would change and maybe see press in a different light, or we could refocus or, re, or, or rethink how we were presenting our wines uh, that we did have. Or the third option is to completely change the wine program, which was off the table. We weren't going to make it just just another wine list by making it sort of international and bringing in a ton of uh, you know Bordeaux and Burgundy and Italy, et cetera, just for the sake of going for that award. So it's kind of a little bit of both as the answer to your question. And the way we went about it or the idea that I had was to... Um, just reshape and refocus how we presented the wine list to make it more about Napa Valley as from a story and a, and a history perspective, as opposed to just a list of words with prices and vintages next to them, which is what uh, the list had been, you know, on an electronic format. So I alluded to earlier that about this time last year, I was four months into rewriting the wine list, um, not to change any of the wines that were represented, but to, again, to better tell the story of why Napa Valley is important and to bring more light to be it uh, vineyards, uh, producers, winemakers, uh, to different eras in Napa and how that fits into the history of America uh, and American winemaking uh, and viticulture. And it's a bit of a shot in the dark, but I, I felt that it would, at the very least, it, it would still be very much an asset to the restaurant and to our guests and to um, it, we would benefit from going through that process anyway. So why not take a shot at it and um, see how it uh, shakes out? And fortunately, it, it was recognized. And going back to my earlier points that could be a function of different people judging in 2022 than they were in years past. It could be uh, a result of that that shift and how things were presented or both. Perhaps other variables that I'm not considering, but that was really, um, it was this idea I had that came from, um, you know, a part of it stems from Kelly's just incredible encyclopedic tome of knowledge of Napa Valley uh, in her book, Napa Valley Then and Now. And certainly you can't give someone a 1400-page book tableside and then help them select a wine from it. But the, the essence of that is that it just connects so much, like overly so, very thoroughly why Napa is important. The other piece was I had dined at another restaurant that actually had an electronic and a paper list and had sort of more of an artistic take as well as the more efficient take. And that was that stemmed from the pandemic. It wasn't even necessarily something they set out to do. They just had to do it for sanitary purposes. And I saw more of the I actually enjoyed looking at both. And it, it got me thinking about how we could maybe recreate ours. Uh, and then the other inspiration was um, Les Amis in Paris, which is the only other um, regional wineless Grand Award winner in the world. You know, when the Grand Awards came out in 2020, uh, one, I looked at the specs for every single one, and there was only one other restaurant in the world that had 
a regional focused wine list. And granted, this one was Burgundy, which is there's a lot to be had within Burgundy. But I felt that if one could do it, then why not a second? Um, so and it was really enjoyable to read through the list, even though um, it really is, you know, north to south. There's um, it feels natural and it felt organic. And I went through a lot of different iterations of thinking, how can we possibly present Napa? Because north to south, south to north in in Napa versus Burgundy is a very different thing. And it doesn't really make sense. Plus, we have all these other grape varieties and we're a much younger wine region. And there were just so many different sort of iterations and drafts of how we could approach the list and make it make it fun and enjoyable and feel like you're reading a book in a sense that if you wanted to spend 20 or 30 minutes just paging through, it would tell a story. So we drew inspiration from a, a lot of places and it took, like I said, it was it was a good four or five months to use it, it did it from scratch and completely reformatted and um, just wanted it to feel good. And um, yeah, ult- you know, ultimately it panned out, but at the end, we still had something to present regardless of how it shook out. And uh, it's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty phenomenal feeling. And I felt that it might not be impossible, but it was going to be a challenge. And that, that aspect of it was like, well, I want to try because that, that gives me sort of a going back to checkpoints, like, you, like we were talking about earlier with examinations, it felt like while we're rebuilding the program, while we're coming out of the pandemic, while we're trying to evolve the food of the restaurant, we can also have this, uh, or at least I personally can have this North Star of trying to achieve something like this. And in that process, improve all of these other processes and and rebuild the seller and the program. So it's kind of like, why wouldn't we at least try? And uh, that was, I guess that's the the reasoning that I had for myself. And that really helped guide um, all of 2021 and the focus on rebuilding. And then the first uh, couple of months of 2022. Also around that same time, you are named Sommelier of the Year by the Michelin's California Guide. How did you find out about that award? Did they call you or did you just find out through like people texting you or? It's more of a a game of suspicion, I guess, <laughs> uh, in that the the first inclination was getting an email from new-ish thing for Michelin where everything is revealed and it's live streamed the first week of December in Los Angeles. And this was uh, a new thing for Michelin where everything is revealed and it versus the the way that chefs found out before, at least to my understanding, you know, I'm not a chef. I've never received a Michelin star as a chef was that you would get a phone call as a heads up and then it, they would be announced in some location, but it wouldn't be the sort of central meeting place for uh, for everyone in the way that it is now. When I received the email, it was the middle of a, a manager meeting. We were discussing... Um, sort of the uh, our plans for 2023 and going over just the ethos of the restaurant and you know it was a big meeting with all the management chefs in front of house and um I get an invite in the middle of the meeting or this email and like my, my heart kind of like skipped a beat uh, for a moment I really uh, oh my god like I want to like get up and start like it just this I couldn't even focus on what was happening in the meeting anymore of course it was a it was a Friday, so we had you know three hours straight of different meetings to go between. And I finally got a moment to. Um, I found Chef, and I said, "Did you get an email today?" And he said, "Yeah." I, I showed him what I what I had received. And he was like, "Oh yeah, I got one too." And I said, 
why did I get one? My head immediately went to maybe I was the point of contact for the restaurant because at that point we had transitioned between general managers. And in 2021, when the Michelin Guide came out, uh, it was around September or so, you know, everything gets updated immediately um, online as far as descriptions, um, whether you got a star or not, et cetera. And our description still had basically something that was three years old. Um, it was referencing dishes that did hadn't existed at the restaurant since 20 early 2019 um, or late 2018. Um, and just the how it described the restaurant, the ethos of it, et cetera. It still had us pegged as a as a classic chop house serving um, steaks and things like that. And I just I was a little miffed because I just felt I felt it for chef. You know, he had him and his team had put in you know, two years, two and a half years of work at that point. And we had done so much on the um, sort of the the outward facing front as well to shift the mindset and set the expectation that you're coming here. It's no longer a steakhouse. Yes, there are steaks on the menu, but there's more intention behind it. We are really focused on being representative of Napa Valley and they're truly abundant amount of ingredients that you can find um, both within the valley, uh, outside of grapes, of course, and um, in Northern California in general. It's it's pretty remarkable when you, you know, our current chef de cuisine moves out from New York at EMP and uh, has been with us for almost a year. And just, you always see it when people move from other places and they're just in shock at the abundance of ingredients that are here. That's the long way of saying that. That's what I thought when I received the email is that, uh, oh, maybe I'm the point of contact because I reached out to, uh, I sent an inquiry into Michelin through the website just to say, hey, you know, can we request just a correction on this description? It's a dish that we haven't had for three years. We're no longer a chop house. Chef Philip Tessier has been at the home for uh, two and a half years. And there's just, there's a different shift. And we want to make sure that any guests, the the right expectations are set for any guests that are reading this. And that was the, the angle we took with it. It wasn't, um, it wasn't emotional. It wasn't, you know, upset or anger. It's like, hey, we want to make sure that people seeing this description are coming for the right thing. Um, also, so that they don't think you're giving incorrect information either. So I just assumed I was the point of contacts that maybe some emails had bounced back and uh, that they were trying to let us know that we were being invited. And then about two or three weeks later, I had a follow-up email for um, uh, for an interview that was asking different wine questions. And at that point, I had a suspicion that there was more to it and that it was that it was potentially in the running uh, for the award, not knowing if, you know, six people get make it get asked this and then they get you know it's it's decided the day of or how it works i just assumed because you know if if you do any amount of research you look at other revelations and you look at some of the year chef of the year the interview questions they're asked and it was like oh wow okay maybe maybe there is a reason i got the email we uh we took it as a i was invited chef was invited we were each allowed to bring a guest and we took it as well um we might as well all go instead of, you know, one person going and it. It actually made it um, a really incredible experience to be there with chef, uh, myself, our director of operations, the owner, and to, to all be there in that moment together and make it this, I mean, it was less than a 24 hour trip to LA. <laughs> and then we were right back to service the next day. And that was a Monday night 
we had our whole team at the restaurant. Uh, it, we live streamed it or brought up the stream, and we have a back private dining room that has a TV that comes out of the um, out of the countertop. Anybody that was working, as well as anyone that was off, was invited. And one of our team team members has a, a pizza truck that he operates on the side. So he let our chef de cuisine, uh, Vincenzo, use it because he he comes. Uh, he's from New York. He has a pretty uh, incredible upbringing from an Italian household and like knows all of that in and out. So he took over the truck and made all this pizza for the team. And at one point, there wasn't a single um, a single person on the floor during during service. It was about eight thirty on a Monday, so it was uh, it was quieting down. But yeah, there was not even a host at the stand at one point, and it was a pretty cool moment to be there in LA and then to have the team watching, you know, 40, 50 people watching all packed into this private dining room on the TV. That's how it panned out. And um, the the actual, that was one of the first things they announced after sort of the, the reception. And they did those awards first before going into the one stars. And I felt that it would, once they announced my name, I felt that more so for chef knowing that, um, there was there was at least a star in the very near future because it would be like why would you give a restaurant name someone some of the year from a restaurant under a Michelin guide but not give the restaurant at least a star so I had this sort of like it was more happiness for for him and all the work that um, the kitchen has done the award itself is 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 an incredible honor and more than anything else it brings and has brought even more attention to the restaurant. And people have come in specifically for that to say hi to me, but it means that they're dining, which is, you know, that's that's the best part. Um, and it, it was a huge boost for the team. It was a pretty, uh, pretty incredible experience. Aside from being the wine director at Press, you also are a chairperson of the diversity committee of the Court of Master Sommeliers. So what all does that entail? What's the goal with your work there? It's been almost three years being since the committee was started and it was really a function of there just weren't conversations that were happening and the world was in a really awful place um three years ago for anyone that doesn't remember um from a not knowing what the future holds societal and cultural perspective especially in the united states and i'm the i'm you know i'm the product of um a mixed race my father's my father's black my mother is uh, Italian American East Coast, and you know, even within their own families, them getting married was not a very popular thing. Yeah, it was just you know, once you had time to kind of, you know, I was working still a hundred hour weeks, and then the world just stopped, and all of a sudden you're not doing anything, and you see what's going on and how it's impacted everyone. So I say all of that because uh, you know I had just passed the MS well for the second time in 2019, and I was working like a dog and just didn't have time for anything. And I wanted to be more involved with the court. It, there was a little bit of a silver lining in in the pandemic, and that um, now I had all of this time, even though there weren't examinations happening at that point. It it gave there was an opportunity to just make myself just completely available and be whatever I could be within the organization and especially try and help however I could to um, to just make more opportunity and make sure that our organization examinations, et cetera, were doing that. I, I got a phone call one day and asked if just my opinion and if I would be open to being a member or contributing uh, to whoever helping out whoever the committee was. And ultimately, it ended up being a founding member of the diversity committee. And about eight months later, 
then being asked to be a co-chair. And then eventually that became just the sole chair uh, person of the committee. The goal is to, I mean, see every, uh, it's multifaceted. The one that's more inward facing uh, for the organization is to look at every single thing that we do, every piece of programming, be it course or examination, uh, communication, and to see it through the lens of as many different perspectives as possible. You know, diversity captures all of that, but diversity means so many different things. I mean, we have students that are blind that are taking our uh, courses and examinations that that want to go further. We have people from all different backgrounds from, uh, you know, and that can be location too. It isn't just, it isn't just skin color. It isn't just um, what city you're located in. It's also how you, how, how you identify, be it as, as uh, you know, ethnicity, as, uh, as gender or non-gender. It's really um, how do we see every single thing we do through that and how it's communicated. And even things like the language of wine and how we talk about wine and flavors and how we're examining to those uh, flavors. Is that really inclusive? Is that really um, giving everyone the same, uh, the same shot, um, uh, the same equal opportunity to, to pass and, and score those points? So that's, uh, I mean, that's, that's in a nutshell what we're trying to do with the committee is to see everything through that lens or make sure uh, every, every part of our, our programming has done so. You know, the other piece is more proactive and that we've been able to be more proactive in the past year with uh, the organization just doing better, quite frankly. Um, you know, it's very difficult to stay afloat even as a nonprofit when there's no exams and there's no revenue and, and courses happening. One of the early ideas we had was to to focus more on how are we bringing people into if you want to increase diversity, you're not going to do it with the pre-existing subset of um, the, the wine community as it is. You have to bring new people into the wine community and also make sure that the community itself is um, is healthy, uh, is open and accessible to them and brings them into a place that's good and not just bringing someone into a place that's harmful and not helpful to their career. And they ultimately leave it anyway. One of the ideas in 2020 was to work with um, you know, let's go to but find people at a much younger age and their wine, their wine experience or their wine uh, relationship in the industry and bring them into it, get them more engaged uh, and and through that increase the diversity in the community and also within within uh, CMS. We're getting closer on that. We have a couple of uh, partnerships with HBCUs where we're going in to teach the the first level, the introductory examination. Uh, and course, and and doing that uh, at no cost to the students, and we're partnering with the universities and uh, other organizations to be able to put that on um, for them. That's what is one piece of sort of a greater subject of us being more proactive to bring people into our programming and courses, but more so into the wine community and just trying to demystify and and make more democratic um, wine beverages in general and help create more more opportunity and more um, education and access around that. Yeah, I mean, we meet still every other week. When we first started, we were meeting multiple times a week. And it wasn't until about a year ago that we moved away from meeting every week because it was getting, it's a lot. Um, and there were just so many things happening so quickly. It was like we, it necessitated meeting that often, but I feel like we're, we're in it. We have a bit more cadence and rhythm now, and we can actually look ahead as opposed to 
reacting to things. We're we're looking at okay, how can we change and uh, be different, be better for this course that's coming up, the one that's uh, a few months from now. What about next year? I mean, uh, another example is we have um, you know we're the Americas chapter, so it's not just um, it's not just the United States. We have uh, we have Central America, South America, Canada. We have Korea. There is a high um, like a, an incredible community, both in uh, both in Mexico and Korea, which are focuses for us right now because we have people traveling to the U.S. to take these exams. It's a huge burden. I mean, you can imagine changing your time zone, and you don't have much time to acclimate, and then you have to step into this high pressure environment. English might not is probably not your first language. Like all of these considerations. Um, whereas maybe if it was done in their home language on their own turf that the the chance of success is is so much greater and um you know many of these discussions started in the diversity committee with or in tandem uh with you know say the examination committee or the education committee and how do we make these things how do we make these things better and one of the the changes was to now that the advanced Examination is theory first, and that's done at a Pearson View Center. It then opens up the ability and the access for psalms uh, in Korea and in Mexico to actually go take that theory exam in the home country and on a timeline that's not two in the morning so that they're taking it at the same time as everyone in the U.S. So it's, um, you know, it, it's, it, it seems like it just opens up more and more as we get deeper and say, OK, well, how do we make that better? How do we make that better? Each time you make something better, it's just it's just constant improvement. And that's how I see the diversity committee. It's it's constantly having these conversations and these ideas and and okay, how do we put pen to paper on this? How do we move this forward? Fortunately, a good chunk of the diversity committee, including myself, are now uh, board members. So there's actually a, a, a throughput from the idea to, okay, how do we present this in the right way and talk about it in a meaningful way, and then actually uh, enact it? What does this look like as opposed to just talking about it? That's been the best part of of being on the committee for the past three years and being involved in that. Um, I feel uh, we're actually living up to that as opposed to there was just a there's a lot of talk uh there's a lot of um it's fun and it's fun and fine to say you're doing something but to actually do it and to kind of be quiet about it and just enact it and, and take action that's something that hits home for me because it's how i approach the exam as well and it's how i try to approach uh, approach life and just like do the things and then let other people talk about it it's way more uh, fulfilling so some of the things that you've kind of helped reshape, you know, within uh, the court, I mean, some of it's the etiquette rules, like serving wine to women first, you guys kind of reshape that, no longer using sir or ma'am when addressing guests to the title is still master small a, but nobody ever refers to anybody as, as master to as well was another thing I think that changed, right? So even though those seem like little changes, how difficult is it to make those changes within an established organization like that? And is it also the case of a lot of little changes start to make big changes and any step forward is basically progress? Well, I think those are, it depends on what piece, because some of the things you mentioned really are, you know, they were standards that were changed that that are written and scored upon. Whereas, you know, such as serve, how did you serve in the correct order versus a culture shift of and, and mindset of people that felt like they needed to be addressed a certain way that has no bearing on scores, but it's how people feel. 
yeah, I never felt comfortable like when when I passed in 18 and um and even in 19 and still today some people like will say that to me and I, I correct it immediately. I've never felt comfortable with someone calling me you know, Master Morrow or Master Vincent. Like that's just that doesn't make me feel good even though it's it's like that's an earned title and I don't even correct them to say Master Sommelier Vincent. Like it's just I'm just Vinny. It's all good. Like we're human. We can have a conversation and to me, that's that's important because you know everyone else is is watching and people look up to that and that you know depending on which um, which avenue you take with that 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 sets something uh, in someone's mind and whether it's a title or not coming up in restaurants and in very intense environments we all understand yes chef and we chef and you know as as a sign of respect for the craft but but for each other like my myself and. Our managers and other people, we call each other chef. That's just, it's a sign of respect. But I think that's another indication of something that can be um, used in a in a, uh, in a a very negative way or can be a very positive way. You know, I could easily see like a chef Ray, but someone cousin comes up to you and says, hey, Ray, I have a question. And, you know, mid-sentence, you stop them and say, it's, it's chef Ray. It's about culture and how we uh, approach it. And I, I guess that's a long roundabout way of saying it's... Um, you know, that's, uh, I, I think that makes a big impact. It starts with how you approach it in the things that are in writing that then impacts the culture, that then impact more of what's in the writing. And it's just this cyclical thing. And it, it just has to be a mantra that we are human and this is an exam and there are people that have passed it. And this is what we, this is what we examine to, and we want everyone to succeed. And that's, that's how we um, move forward. And it's not about that the title is an incredible thing and an accomplishment, but that it doesn't define us, even the people that have passed it or the people that have yet to be successful um, and and to just want everyone to to sort of want the same things and the, the wonderful things that come with being on the other side um, and, and the journey of getting there. I mean, some of my absolute like best friends in life, um, you know, I was I alluded to earlier that I was married once before my best man at, at that wedding was um uh, is is still one of my best friends, and we met uh, we met coming up through French Laundry and examinations and such. And they have the whole community here in Napa and San Francisco, and and now traveling to exams and competitions. I'm still friends with uh, with everyone, and that's the the best part about the journey. And what I want people to aim to, you know, wherever your journey stops, whether it's certified or if you want to continue to advanced and master, um, that's the best part of it. And if you can find joy in that, then you'll, uh, I think it'll take the mind off of the exam being sort of life or death. And that was the, you know, the latter, having it be life or death was the approach I had for years and was wildly unsuccessful at it. And then as soon as I could find the balance in it is when I was when I became successful. Some of it just, it's not even relevant either, because I mean, I was working in San Francisco. I mean, we had a a service and the way I approached service in the city was whatever made sense for the table and tailoring it to those guests in that situation. And we couldn't even go around the table clockwise in most cases. And um, especially in, you know, a very um, forward sort of progressive city like San Francisco, like using sir and ma'am and things like that. Unless you are 100% sure um, that that is appropriate for that table. Um, I've seen so many people put their foot in their mouth table side because they just were being robots and 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 not paying attention 
yeah, it's a terrible feeling for you, but imagine how that person feels. And um, I think just being in San Francisco and Northern California in general was great practice uh, for me. And um, I just, I have a hard time seeing why any of that was, was still necessary. So that was honestly a very easy decision. And when to your question, when you make a change like that, yes, it's um, it's more about communicating those changes because you have a whole community that is has followed that for so long and they're expecting that and they're practicing for it. And then all of a sudden you take it away and there's there's just an adjustment period. But, you know, after however long it's um, it feels like it's something that's always been that way. I like to approach those things as they're easy. We just need to do it and follow through on the work. Let's make the change. Yes, of course, let's do it in a, in a in a way that is smart and intelligent, but let's like, let's just do it now and move on from it and not be worried about how we're gonna move on from it uh, so much or everything that is gonna happen because of the change. Let's just approach it as if we know it's gonna happen. So how would we react or what changes would we make? And then do it and then move on from it. Because if we sit here and ruminate on things and discuss them, you know, overly discuss it and it goes back and forth. And before you know it, six months have passed, 12 months have passed, it looks tone deaf. Right. And it looks like we're not listening and paying attention. And I think that in a big way, the um, that idea earlier of reactive versus being proactive, like we feel very much in the in the proactive camp now. And just, you know, I think the our current board of directors, as well as our um, uh, our executive director, uh, Julie uh, Cohen Theobald, who started it's been about a year and a half, like she comes from uh, an incredible nonprofit as well as corporate background. And she's always kind of pushing us too of like, why are we even discussing this? This is, if you see it from the student or uh, uh, a community perspective, this shouldn't even be a sticking point. Like we just need to do it and move on. And it really helps, um, you know, when you have people like that in the room that just keep, they keep pushing you forward and help you see the the bigger picture. And that's been, um, she's on the diversity committee as well. So between that and the board, it's been, uh, you know, decisions like that, that I think might seem small that have big ramifications or might seem difficult become much easier when you can have a group like that discussing it. You're also a partner in wine chips. So how did you get involved with that business? Wine chips was completely random and it was from another master sommelier who was on the diversity committee at the time, Emily Wines. She was actually the uh, the chair of the board at the time and was had previously been on the diversity committee and she reached out to me and said, "Hey, we're um, you know, we're looking for a fourth person, a fourth master sommelier to be a part of this in an advisory role and she introduced me to the founder and they sent me some samples and I'm like, this is really cool. Like, yeah, of course, why not? And um, anything uh, that I feel gets more people engaged and talking about wine and and doesn't take itself too seriously. Like, yes, the chips are serious and there's a lot of knowledge and thought put into it. Um, but if it can help people see that, let's pair, let's pair wine and chips. Like, let's pair wine and really damn good potato chips. And like, that's okay too, you know, without people maybe seeing that outright or realizing it. I think that just gets more people excited and engaged about, about the aspect of pairing it about food and wine together. And that's, that's really the core of it. So it's been a, it's been a cool opportunity so far. And we just um, are exploring different avenues for, you know, how wine ships fits into, into the world of wine and beverage. And it's a whole different exploration for me. And that was a 
you know, sort of the other motivation to be a part of it was I want to be exposed to things beyond just restaurants and beyond just um, wine. I want to see how other businesses operate and, and learn and grow in that way. It's been really fun. Every sommelier has a wine region or wine style that they just kind of gravitated towards when they were going through their exams and everything. So what was yours? What was your kind of favorite region, that region that like hooked you into wine? Oh man, I vacillated so much throughout my studies. I just was was drinking from a fire hose. I feel like uh, I just wanted to taste many different things. And I went through a lot of phases. I'd say the the one wine experience while I was studying or the one wine that just like gave me goosebumps in the moment and it still gives me goosebumps to think about it. But it's one of those moments where it, it just, yeah, I'm I'm doing the right thing. I love this. Like, wow, if wine can be like this. So I was at the wine bar. Um, I was at the wine bar a few nights a week and I was taking a wine class at Napa Valley uh, College. And the professor at the time was the wine buyer for a wine and spirit store here called JV Wine and Spirits that no longer exists, but it, it was one of the largest and best selections in California outside of like Wally's in LA and Bottle Barn in Santa Rosa. So she was the buyer. She was a certified sommelier and she taught this course every year. And it's like 150 bucks to take the course for the whole semester. And it was one class a week for 16 weeks. The first lecture, I think, was Loire. The second one was Bordeaux. And the third one was Burgundy. And I mean, just the Burgundy or Bordeaux class alone it was worth more than that $150 for the wines we got to taste. And in the Bordeaux lecture, the uh, one of the reds was uh, Chateau Aubriand 1990 uh, from Pesac Leonon. And I mean, I already had some anticipation and anxiety, like, oh my God, this is my first like old like Bordeaux. And this is like, this is a big deal. And it just over delivered so many times over. And I I remember thinking like, yeah, this is, I'm studying for this. I like got to taste this. I get to connect the dots and just how incredible this wine is. Like, I know every wine won't be like this, but this just made me feel like, like I'm on the, I'm on the right track very early on. What I realized as I studied, um, you know, through the first and second level and even into the advanced was I really gravitated away from uh, American wine. And even though that's where I started, I quickly sort of that pendulum swung back into sort of a more balanced approach to everything that is wine as I was going from advanced to, to master it was only because like, well, no, it's it's California. I'm not into it. Like, that's not cool. I think it was just an, an immature thing for me, like coming up and studying and, and becoming a song. But uh, I'd say now, uh, currently, the definitive answer is, is Mount Etna in Sicily, without question. Um, my partner and I were there in July. We tend to drink lighter reds, but we love, you know, something that's aromatic and has structure to it. And for me, Norello Mascalese checks all the boxes. Um, it's uh, and there's so many different expressions. And you know, for the money, uh, to be honest, like yeah, I love Burgundy, but I don't make the type of money that you know um, Burgundy has just skyrocketed out of control since I first started studying. I love Rhone Valley and uh, I love Grenache. Um, my favorite ones have now become way too expensive, like just because of economics. And um, I feel that I'm really hoping like White Lotus and all these different things don't screw it up. But 
the expectations for it, um, the experience, the wines, the people, the food. You know, when I like touched down in Sicily, I felt like I was home. Like there was something like in my DNA, in my body that just felt like it had finally made it home because my mother has some heritage uh, in Sicily and uh, it just, it, it was this visceral feeling and uh, everything was so amazing about it. So we're, we've just been actively trying to find more and more great um, Etna producers and want to plan a trip to go back. And if I owned a, a vineyard anywhere, it would be in Etna. When you get the chance to go out to dinner, do you compulsively check the wine list, bottle list when you sit down to see what they have? Or are you able to just enjoy and separate it? Depends on the place. Um, if it's uh, a place we usually would visit in in Napa, then we're probably more comfortable just going there and like peeking through the list on site. But when we visit other uh, cities and, and restaurants we haven't been to before, we're definitely spending time looking at the list beforehand because it just gives us more time to enjoy each other at dinner as opposed to like passing a wine list back and forth for 10 or 15 minutes and then having to make a decision. And it's really, uh, so yes, to, to both. We become better at it over time. When you look at the next generation of sommeliers, the ones that are up and coming, what do you see? What do you see coming? That's a great question. I mean, we have um, an awesome group of people studying at press that I'm really I'm really thankful and fortunate to have, and it gives some some insight into like what's cool and what's happening right now. But honestly, I think it's um, just in the same way that the sort of up and coming wine uh, wine and beverage consumer, it's that we're open to open to anything, and that's also a function of uh, you know I was just speaking uh, earlier about how certain regions are just completely priced out, and that partially my generation, but definitely the next one. It's like, how are they ever going to know what uh, Rousseau Chambertin tastes like? How are they ever going to get to experience Chateau Rayas? Like, I think by nature of um, economics and uh, finance and the way restaurants are now, like they're not really, we're not really structured to be able to be put in front of those wines routinely. The way like I was very, very lucky and fortunate that at French Laundry, I got exposed to a lot of that stuff on a on a daily basis. How do we make sure that's still in effect? And I think with with people coming up now, with Psalms coming up now, that just everything's on the table. And in tandem with a technology is getting better for uh, more of these um more regions to be more well known and to have a throughput so that they can they can get imported pretty quickly, um, get picked up pretty quickly. I think there's a hunger with more and more wine professionals creating companies that are seeking out lesser known producers, lesser known regions, always on the hunt for the new thing in a way that 10 or 15 years ago, it wasn't happening as rapidly. There's just so much more access and um, with that comes a lot more noise too. So it's harder to sift through all of it, but there's just, there's just so much more access in general than there ever has been. And I think ultimately that is helping to create just better Psalms than there ever, than there ever were before, as long as you can kind of sort through that. Um, yeah. Used to, I mean, just the amount of information online too is, is, is insane. And, uh, I mean, still like buying books is, is inc an incredible resource and a great way to like study and retain, but as far as like access to information at the same time, it's just, it's better than it's ever been. And I think that it has the potential to, to give this generation, new generation of songs, like that much more power and leverage and um, ability to just make the guest experience that much better. 
Then in your opinion, what's the next wine region to, you know, explode? Do you think it's, you know, we've had people say Mexico, Michigan. When you look at kind of the wine industry as a whole, where great wines are being made and everything, and like you already spoke to kind of things being priced out of the average consumer's, you know, price range. But what do you kind of see up and coming? Like what's that part of the world that you're kind of keeping an eye on? Like, oh, they got some cool stuff over there. Like, let's see where this goes. So, I mean, I feel like Sicily and Etna is experiencing that right now. I mean, just the sheer amount of older vineyards, um, climate producers, like they're really in this, uh, the exposure that is happening there right now is is really incredible. But the wines have always been that way, but now the exposure and access and interest is there. And, and they aren't sort of held back by held back by other things out of their control. And uh, what I mean by that is another region or country I think about is Israel that has just incredible wine, incredible across the board. I was there about uh, six years ago and was completely blown away by all of the experiences. And, but, you know, they're in a much different part of the world and in a, in a, a country that is uh, one that doesn't consume alcohol and, and doesn't look admirably upon it. And there's just bigger fish to fry from a political standpoint. So actually getting wine from Israel to the U.S. is very, uh, especially if it's not kosher, is very difficult. Yeah, it's it's one region that or one place that felt like that if if there is a way to kind of connect that somehow that the, just the sky is the, the limit for that. And I think you can say somewhat of the same for um uh for lebanon as well there's some really incredible things happening there and um great producers that have always been there but it's just it's very tricky actually getting that out to getting disseminating that out to the world in a way that you know something like lo more locally would be the columbia gorge for me is um there in a place i mean it's really a from a it's still a growing and evolving wine region and it only really has been focused on from a media standpoint and from a psalm standpoint, maybe in the past 10 years, less than that. But you go there and see what they're planting and what soils they have and what they're able to do and just all the different um, all the different terrain and microclimates and cost of land, cost of labor, like it's significantly less than California. And the opportunity is, great i think and in addition to sicily if there was another place i could own uh, or plant a vineyard it would be columbia gorge like absolutely there are just stunning wines coming out of there for uh it's still like, very 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 reasonable um, prices and great people that are involved in it um you know uh, nate reddy is up there with Hayu, and granted that's not completely columbia gorge but it's 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 within striking distance um, Sincline, sparkling Gruner Veltliner, still Gruner Veltliner. They're planting uh, Savoie grape varieties. They're just, they're leaning into it fully. But, you know, they spent, I think, about five years or so doing soil analysis throughout the Columbia Gorge to figure out what they should buy and also what they should plant. You know, those are just two of many producers that are uh, that are absolutely knocking knocking it out of the park. And I think those, all three of those places are, uh, opportunities for Psalms to uh, diversify right now and their wine list, if it makes sense for what they're doing. And um, 
You know, it's just a place where Cabernet and Bordeaux variety, well, Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot specifically, they just doesn't do well there. So they really, even people that have the money and the means to do so really have to think about what they want to plant and what they want to do. And it's not just like Napa where, hey, if you have enough money and you can make it happen and yeah, Cabernet or something is is one of the few uh, is like the formula to success versus a place like that, that there's just so much possibility. What's next for you professionally? I mean, you know, you're working as a wine director. Obviously, you have, you know, the partnership and wine chips and, and you're serving the chairperson. But anything else on the horizon for you? You know, would you ever consider opening an own wine bar down the road or doing a wine label? Or what's like the next challenge for you? Next challenge I, for me, I still feel like I have so much to learn about the wine industry and the business in general so much. I mean, virtually all of my experience has been in restaurants and really focused on, you know, one brick and mortar still haven't, uh, you know, hopefully we're the goal for us is to grow into a hospitality group um, at press and to have, you know, really look forward to chef having his flagship restaurant uh, at some point. And that's been a goal since day one, since coming on and to really operate multiple locations that are not at all in the same building like it was at 165. And that was a goal I had then at that point, it just the pandemic happened and continuing uh, for me to to learn more about the, the business and operations side uh, from a beverage standpoint. I still very much enjoy uh, working the floor um, and, and enjoy running the program at, at press. But that's also something that it's important to me that what I'm putting out there in the world, you know, with with the court um, and with the wine community is that building the next generation and, and giving back to others. I also like really am focused on doing that at press, too. And I want to help people realize their dreams and help them realize, OK, like here's what here's what the day to day is of being a wine director like you do it. I'll kind of oversee and I'm always you know, I'm always here if you need anything, but I want to build that sort of. Uh, foundation beneath us so that other people get a chance too. And it's there. Uh, I want to create the opportunities that I never had. Um, you know, the ones that I wanted that I asked for that that weren't given to me, even after I felt I had proved, uh, proved loyal and put in the work and proved that I was doing the work outside of work, and they still weren't being given. So I had to go to another place to find it. I don't want our psalms to have to do that, or our food runners that want to become psalms. What does that look like? How do we get them up to being a to being a back waiter, to being a captain, to being a psalm? Like I want that as well at press. And if we can also create a hospitality group, how do we build people into 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 leaders and into into managers? How do we get them to also being wine and beverage directors? And that's really exciting for me as well. So. That's all. Those are all places that I'm still um, still learning and growing in, and I have a lot of room to grow. But at the same time, I also am very interested in staying sharp about the rest of the world too, and traveling, and then returning and educating others on that. Um, it's when I can speak to someone about uh, about Etna and the different producers and contratas, and just translate that experience I had last summer to them. Um, it just feels so much more natural and, and genuine and authentic and way more fun for me. And I still want to find as many opportunities as possible to 
travel um, travel to other wine regions to to soak everything in, to learn about them, to um, all of the things I've studied to actually see it uh, uh, up close and personal, and to then be that much more of a um, of a leader and 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 translator and, and educator in a sense that I can help other people live that experience until they're able to go um, themselves. And uh, you know whether it's whether it's talking about Germany or Sicily or um, or, or different regions in California, et cetera, that I have been, it's that just, that makes it uh, way more fun um, for both sides. So I'm hoping that there, um, that we grow, grow the hospitality group and then that there are opportunities to do more of that because of it, because we are a, an all Napa Valley wine list and that's pretty, um, there's restriction in that, but there is also freedom within that to express that. But I feel like um, we're in a good place and we're doing that now. And it's more, um, we spent almost two years building the rebuilding the program and now it's in a good place. So I'd like to um, be able to, we can open a restaurant for chef and then continue to explore other regions from around the world and around California through whatever that, or that's uh, uh, that venue or that project is. So this next question comes from the previous guest on the podcast, Chef Jeff Miller. He's an executive chef and co-owner of Rosella Sushi in New York City. He left behind a question for you. What's the difference between those that love being in restaurants every day versus those that show up because it's a job that they're good at? Like, what's the difference to you? It's great. I feel like uh, you can usually suss it out and it's a feeling and it, it will manifest itself in, in different ways. But it's something that we have really focused on with hiring at press. It's not to say that one is better than the other, because I do think in some sense you need both, especially the way the labor market is. But it's just about being very clear about what people want and what they're seeking from the job or seeking from employment. And for some people, that is learn like learning every position and growing, and they love like being at the restaurant and they love, um, I don't know if they love restaurants in general, but they love being at, at press uh, because they get to learn and grow. And then there's, we have people, they're, they're 20, 30 year veterans and they love being in the restaurant, but it is like, they're very good at their job and that's, they don't want to be a manager. They don't want to be a wine director or anything else. They just, they want to do what they do and it's their job and they want to do it. They want to do it well. But then someone that just really, it's truly just a job for them and um, there's no sort of sense of love or passion that comes from it. I feel like we've, if we don't really have much of that uh, at the restaurant and it, to me, it manifests itself in shortcuts. It, and usually that it happens during service, but it's shortcuts, like people just don't care. Uh, and if a, a guest is unhappy or something ha- goes wrong and a mistake that impacts a guest, there's no sort of an internalization of that, um, at least in that they don't continue to try to correct that or to to get better or to evolve so that the guests can have a better experience. And I think when people are not open to evolution and growing and improving, that's the part where we just we're trying to trim that fat. Like we don't want that and we can't succeed because our brand and and motto is mantra is is to continue growing and evolving and we've had to especially with the nature of how the restaurant has changed how do you suss them out i think or how do you separate the two i think it's um people that are continue to be stimulated by restaurants and by uh, being on a team in a restaurant 
are the ones that it have at least enough love. It's contributing to the guest experience and to the team and to themselves. And then there's a, there's a sect of people that just have no desire to learn or to grow or to evolve. And when you start making changes, there are all sorts of grumblings and there's just friction and eventually they they kind of sort themselves out. And that's um, it's a it's a process that we've gone through at Press definitely in the past three years. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? Can be anything. What is the biggest inner like personal challenge that someone has had coming up in their career? I think about that a lot. There's a lot of conversation around um especially now around mental health and balance and things like that. And, uh, you know, that was a, that was a struggle for me. Yeah. I alluded to it, uh, previously of the sort of the, the outward facing, everything looks like it's good and you're succeeding and you're winning competitions and you're moving up in certification. But then on behind that image is just, um, like pain and distraught and sadness and frustration and, and all of these things. And, um, that, 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 that piece was something I had to to overcome to then actually feel good about everything else that was happening, and to ultimately, um, uh, you know, to uh, uh, being successful not just at the exam, but to um, but to life and like giving myself the space and permission to uh, like be open to different opportunities. And had I not gotten through that or worked through that tough period, I don't I don't know that I would have ever been as successful as, as I, I wanted to be or have been up until this point. I bring that up because I just did a um, an article for the Salty magazine that was completely open-ended as far as like what I was allowed to, what I could say and what I would write, and they weren't going to edit anything out. So I really had to think about every single thing and think about um, A, what to talk about, and B, how to write it, because if they won't help me sort of edit out any of the, like, the dumb stuff or stuff that is like not connecting, like I really have to do that myself. So it was an interesting exercise. One of the first things I did was read an issue that uh, Chef Phil, our our chef and partner had, I bought the issue and I read through it. And I mean, one of the first uh, stories was just about uh, another chef's uh, struggle with mental health and how they work through it and, and different things. And it just, it made it feel more human to me and it was inspiring to me. And I feel like Maybe that's a question that can be whoever the next uh, person is, and they can talk through those things that hopefully that can inspire someone else or someone can relate to that and say, oh, I've, I've I've been there before. I've I've felt that too, or I had my own experience and realized that like, it's okay. And you're not, it's not insular. You're not alone. There's other people are going through similar things. Next question comes from one of our listeners. They wrote in, if you could run the wine program at one restaurant that you've never worked at, which would it be and why? I guess the two immediate ones that come to mind, because, you know, I did did have a a pipe dream of running the wine program at uh, French Laundry or, you know, at least being on the floor, but like running the wine program because it was, um, you know, working under Dennis Kelly I admired him and still do so much because his he is so calm and like working 90, 100 hour weeks, so calm and collected, did everything start to finish, so polished every night on the floor, didn't matter how like intense the service was. And I just, and even in tough situations, he just kept his head. And I felt like more so because of Dennis that I wanted to have that pressure and see if I could um, also stay 
call and collect it and run a program of that nature, you know, with the pressure of, of Thomas Keller's name on it and all of that. Um, so I guess that that was always sort of in the back of my mind. But when I asked that question immediately, my my head went to either, I don't know why, but 67 Pall Mall in the UK or um, to Burns in Tampa, just because I've still never been, and I was supposed to go before the master Somali examination in 2017, but then the, the hurricane hit, which there hasn't been an examination in Florida since around that time of year, um, understandably so, but that was the only opportunity I would have had to go. And uh, just want, like a program of that size with things that are that, like, quite frankly, they're cheap and accessible. So like, how do you even... They're much just, it's just like a, it's like a treasure chest of uh, incredible wines from around the world. So I just, uh, it's more of a curiosity, like what kind of team do you have there? How do you even like, you must just be serving crazy bottles all the time and, and more just like, how do you keep up with it? That's kind of my, uh, that's kind of my, uh, my thought initially. And there's so many other great programs that I could think about, like, uh, EMP. I was pretty amazed by that and wondered sort of how that operates. You've got an army of sommeliers to put on that type of service and, uh, different things like that. But I can't, I can't really think of anything else that comes to mind, though there are, I'm sure, plenty of, uh, incredible places to, I always wonder about running a, a wine program on a cruise ship, to be honest, because uh, it's like, once you leave, it's, it's not coming back. So like, how do you purchase for that, especially across like international waters? And what are the licenses for that? And how do you get and maintain great wine? And just like that, I've definitely been down a rabbit hole on that one. Or being somewhere in like uh, exotic destinations like the Maldives. Uh, I was there once and I just wondered like, how do you even get wine here on this one island of 400 islands that has a, you know, a hotel and a restaurant on it? That's, uh, it, it boggles me and they're all different challenges that I've never had to um, work through. So there will always be a curiosity for that, even though I'm 35 now, I don't think I'm going to be on a, a cruise ship running a wine program. Uh, I think that that ship has sailed, uh, no pun intended. So this last set of questions we ask to everyone who comes on the podcast, so a nice compare and contrast across all the episodes. So a little bit more of a rapid fire for you. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your sommelier career thus far? Looking back on it. Uh, I don't think anyone's going to be upset, but it, it would be a tie between uh, Dennis Kelly and Yoon Ha, for sure. What is your desert island wine? Etna. That's easy. <laughs> Etna, white or red or bubbles. It's It's coming from Etna. Restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own. So scenario I give is a person gets stuck at the airport, press is closed. They reached out to you and say, hey, you know, where should we go eat? You point them in this direction. If you haven't planned anything at that point um, and you're coming to Napa, probably like send you to Zuzu, uh, which is in downtown Napa. Zuzu or they have a, a gen bar next door, more of a tapas style place, La Taberna. But it's just like, it's so good. Spanish tapas, but they have the gen bar, so now they have a full liquor license, and they've just recently upgraded their wine storage because they acquired more space, and you can drink like old old Rioja for for next to nothing. It's really like food service, everything. It's it's phenomenal, and it's it's a place you can get into as a walk in. It's not like a, it's also in Napa. You don't have to drive thirty minutes up north to get to press. So saves you a trip. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. So place you have not traveled to yet, but you still want to make it to. And then also a restaurant you have not dined at yet, but you still want to eat at one day. Bucket list travel. Top of the list uh, is Morocco. Food, 
may, well, mainly the surfing, but of course, food. There's wine there too. There's a lot of uh, French influence. And it was kind of something I explored at 165 of trying to use other French sort of French influenced uh, areas of the world to include wine from. And I just never got to deep dive into Morocco the way I wanted to for that place. Um, but yeah, the surfing there is is absolutely insane. And when you can combine um, wine and surfing, then I'm I'm all ears. As far as places to eat, um, I think uh, Pujol in Mexico City that has the um, that has the mother uh, the mother mole, so the fresh mole each the dish with the fresh mole each day, and then the mother essentially the solera of mole. That's just like even thinking about that is 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 mind blowing. But um, that's uh, I definitely want to explore that. I guess it comes to mind right off the bat. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? I feel like a lot of them are just stories that I've heard like after I started of previous guests, but things that I have seen that are just that are crazy. I mean, it's not necessarily crazy, but there's one night at French Laundry where I, I was just in awe. I was like, wow, mad respect. Okay. Every now and again, there's just a night where someone has a five hour dinner and the table just doesn't turn and they're not going to turn. And you know it, and even a five o'clock table uh, and you have a nine o'clock seating, like they just, they're not going to do it. And um, there's one night I think we, you know, Thomas had um, had someone in town or it was, a, it was a VIP that meant the world to him. So we just, we made a table happen for them at, uh, that was supposed, we sat them at like seven or 7.30 and it was supposed to be a turn for a nine o'clock and like, no one eats dinner in two hours at front Sandry, like. Nobody, unless you're like absolutely crushing the menu, at least when at least when I was there. So it was very obvious that there wasn't going to be a table for at least an hour for our last reservation. And before I knew it, the GM had pulled a table by himself, grabbed one of the um, grabbed one of the uh, coffee servers to help him bring a table upstairs through the back way and then open the French doors, picks the table up over his head and plops it right down in between two other tables, puts a linen on it, and then just sets it, like doesn't make a big deal of it. And no one would, like, none of the guests knew any better. They wouldn't know that there's not supposed to be a table there. But the GM seats them, comes down and says, chef, uh, table 26 is down. And everyone's like, 26? What are you talking about? But I had seen the whole thing happen from the background. I think it was a back waiter that night. And I was just like, it's just find a solution, like figure it out. And that was the solution was to just, we now have 14 tables instead of 13, you know, or something like that. And it was just like, you know, it's one of those moments where you can't even fathom, like, how are we going to do this? We need a table to finish quickly. And then instead it's like, no, let's just, let's just add a table. And it just, um, it was one of those lessons to me in terms of, I mean, it's not the craziest thing I've ever seen, but it was a good lesson to me in terms of like, just finding a way through. And it's not always necessarily going to be pretty, but a, not putting yourself in a situation like that. But if there's just no other choice, like find a way through. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything, fast food, candy, whatever that you know is pretty unhealthy for you, but you just can't help yourself. Well, I intentionally don't keep it around because it makes me feel awful, but I love Sour Patch Kids. And um, when we opened the 165 and we were working like maniacs, 14 hours, 16 hours, six, seven days a week, there was a little Walgreens around the street that we could just go in, get something real quick and go. And it would always just be like two cans of yerba mate and a bag of uh, Sour Patch Kids. 
I don't know how it didn't do it at the time, but now if I eat those, I feel like absolute garbage. Like you get through a couple of them and my, my tongue starts to get numb. It's like the sugar and the citric acid just gives immediate palate fatigue. It feels like my tongue is numb. And then I start to feel almost like hungover. Like uh, if you eat too much sugar and then you're just like completely down uh, and you feel dehydrated, like I start to feel the similar effects of being hungover if I eat too much Sour Patch Kids. So I love them, but I can't stop eating them when they're in front of me, even knowing how bad it's going to make me feel. So I just can't even, I can't buy them wine recommendations so we broke this into four categories so what would you recommend to just the average kind of wine drinker something that they should kind of explore or look towards or try twenty dollars and under fifty dollars and under a hundred dollars and under and then over a hundred no limit you know if they all three of them wind up being at you know 1999 like that's fine you don't have to like go up to the limit so what would you recommend to people twenty dollars and under is the first one $20 and under, I mean, it's just so much bang for the buck, but, uh, um, well, that's hard. Aetna pretty much qualifies across the board. And most cases it's getting slightly above that. But if it's like, I mean, if you just need, uh, I mean, it's starting to get warm here now. So if you just need something quick and easy, like get some like Vino Verde or Beaujolais, like those are, those are tried and true, uh, for me, 50 bucks definitely opens a lot of possibilities. Um, there's, I'm not even feeling creative on that front. Like there's just so much good stuff. Uh, California, California Pinot is probably my next option. Or like there's some Grenaches here in Napa that are like just way more aromatic and, and fruit driven. Like I think of like Newfound um, Grenache is just like, it's so delicious from Mount Veeder. And I, I think it's like probably 30, 35 retail. And it satisfies like so on so many different fronts, and it's an all it's an all season red. Hundred bucks, uh, you know. I think you for me, I start to get into that that realm of um, all right. Let's let's step it up a little bit. Let's go to like Barolo, Barbaresco. Let's um, let's get some wines that have some some uh, some like seriousness and substance. And you know, if you're spending that much money on a bottle, you're probably open to like dedicating some time to making risotto or amulote plein um have to have to be one of those and then if it's over 100 i mean you know make it count like gets gets get some champagne like just lean into it and get a nice bottle of champagne and uh not to say that other regions wouldn't count but i feel like they there are other regions that you can find plenty under a hundred dollars to satisfy but with champagne like there there are certain instances where it did 100 justifies spending more than $100 if you got it. What is one book focused on beverage, whether it's wine, cocktails, whatever, that you think everyone should read? Man, I mean, honestly, I started with, um, I think it was the, it was kind of a mix between Wine Bible and Atlas of Wine and, and things like that that just kind of got me got me started. But it was, um, I think if, if it's like, if it's really from an educational standpoint and you're studying, um, one book that helped me uh, dive into it i'm gonna see if i can actually don't even have the copy anymore i think i lent it out and then never got it back i think it was like not sales and service for the wine professional but it, it was it was something in that uh in that vein that just helped me like how do i capture all of this information that isn't in like several 600 page books and how to like i just needed some guidance and that like that really helped me a lot just quick snapshots of different regions and things like that so 
I'd have to I'd have to get that name back to you because, like I said, I don't even have the copy anymore. I definitely lent it out and never got it back. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is or was. If you were, is there a moment, episode, scene about him that still stands out to you? If you weren't, is there anybody else who was on TV, you know, Julia Child, Emerald, somebody, culinary personality that you always kind of gravitated towards when you were coming up through your Somali career? No, that was one of the first um, like food or chef books that that I read that um, was non-wine related and it was early in my career. And yeah, I, I agree with that. I'm on the side of seeing the sort of the the underbelly or the everything that's beneath the surface that we don't talk about. And I, I related a lot to that with Anthony Bourdain. So for all the vices and for all the negative things, like I, I identified a lot with just that feeling of, yeah, kind of kind of loneliness at times or feeling like, you know, what are you trying to accomplish in this world? And, um, but then being, feeling alive during travel and exploration and connecting with other people and cultures. And I really like that, that was a part of how I sort of came out of that process in 2017 and 2018 towards the exam was I, I started I traveled on my own for the first time. I'd never done that in my life before. Um, I mean, I had traveled solo to go to places where I had a group to be with, right? I traveled by myself. But as far as like taking a trip by myself, I did a lot of that in early 2018, mainly driven by places I wanted to go surf. And sure, if they had some wine or beverage, that would be cool. But I wasn't driven to travel places just by wine anymore. And it helped, it unlocks something in me. And like, I, I very much identify with, um, with Anthony Bourdain and, and that regard of like being on your own and having to figure it out and sort it out. And how do you find a medium to connect with people that you might not even, you might not speak the same language? Like, what does that mean? And, you know, the language of food and the language of beverage is um, something that is, doesn't necessarily require verbal uh, or words to express. So I'm a, I'm a Bourdain fan. Where can people find you? Social media, website, uh, restaurant reservations, plug everything. Yeah, that's one of the other challenges of staying uh, active in that regard. I do have uh, an Instagram, Vinny Chase's Wine. I don't have a website. Um, I think it's a logical step at some point, but uh, it feels a little like self-serving, but it's also like it's how people find you. So I'm still struggling with that. Like, what would that look like? And is it necessary? And what should I do with it? Um, and then, you know, certainly there's, we have a, a bio on the press website where you can make uh, reservations. You can follow Press Napa Valley uh, on Instagram and you can make reservations through there. But um, yeah, I'm not hard to find, but I don't have like necessarily a ton of uh, <laughs> a ton out there, I guess. And press is open. Seven dinners a week, no lunch. Yeah, seven dinners a week, and we're only closed for major holidays as of this point. Um, we open at five, and uh, last seating is typically eight thirty. And then on the weekends, on Friday, Saturday, it's nine thirty. And we're um, you know we're shifting soon on the first into a um, slightly different menu format, or, or I should say, a more focused menu format. So right now it's a la carte and or a seven course tasting menu that will then turn into a pre-fee four-course or a seven-course tasting menu. And it's how our menu was already formatted already, and that's how people were choosing. We're now just sort of making that the standard as opposed to um, uh, where you select from each category, and that's kind of what was already happening anyway. So it's uh, um, more just streamlining, I guess, for us and making the guest experience even better. 
Now, this was awesome, and I can't thank you much for you know thank you enough for your time and and sitting here and chatting about your career. I actually had a friend who was in Napa a couple weeks ago, and he's not a big planner. I didn't even know he was out there, but he texted me. He was like, "Well, where where should I go eat?" And I listed off some places. Like, yeah, I tried that one. Like the reservations are booked or whatever. And I'll have to follow up with him see where I went. But I you know I remember looking and I was like, I'm. I mean, you can try to go to press. Like, I don't know if they have any, you know, reservations open or not, but like, I knew you guys were open most of the days of the week. So I'll have to follow up with him and see if he, where he went and whatnot. But, you know, it's been a little while since we've been to Napa, a few years, but we usually make it to kind of the West Coast Bay Area, you know, once every couple of years and obviously do for a return trip. So, you know, press is on, you know, we keep a running list of places that we want to go to and, and press is on there. So, you know, looking forward to trying the food and, and definitely trying the wine pairings and everything that you got going on with it um, too as well. And and following kind of your next challenges, uh, you've had a lot of success and you're not done yet. And that's very clear. You have more things that you want to accomplish. So it'd be cool to you know follow along and see where you wind up and what's kind of next for you. Yeah, thank you for having me. And uh, I know there's there's a lot of like streaming thoughts and, and, uh, and, and, and sidebars at times. And I hope that it's... Uh, uh, enjoyable and easy to follow for everyone that's listening. But I appreciate uh, the opportunity. I've never done a podcast before. And I've always uh, been interested in it and in that world too, uh, of what you do and how you uh, curate um, program and bring people on and keep people engaged. And uh, I think it's, uh, I think it's incredible. So, so thank you for having me. And uh, I hope that you do make it out soon. And uh, please feel free to either yourself or anyone that's listening to, to ping me personally. And I'm happy to uh, assist however I can with press, um, or you can just go to the website and, and, and bypass that entirely, but at least let me know that you're coming uh, if and when. Big thanks again to Vinny for coming on the podcast, uh, taking some time out of multiple days. Uh, this was recorded over a two-day period, recorded pretty long. He had to get to the restaurant, and uh, then we finished up the following day. So it's happened a, a couple times when you just kind of get into the flow of the conversation, kind of lose track of time. So always great to connect with people that are super passionate about their industry, uh, the wine industry too as well. So again, you can follow him on Instagram at Vinny Chases Wine. Also make sure to follow Press the Restaurant. It's at Press Napa Valley. And then also you can follow the wine chips account is just at wine chips follow us on instagram too as well at spoon mob check out the website spoonmob.com and then make sure to follow subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform that you use to listen to podcasts that is it for this week's episode big thanks again to tanya over at suited hospitality for reaching out helping set this up too and coordinating um too as well so it's always great to kind of get connected with people um, that are doing different things within the industry and are kind of fans of the podcast and what we're doing here. So it's always cool to see. Appreciate all the emails and submittals uh, through the contact portal from people too as well. Keep those coming, but uh, appreciate everybody who's been listening. If you're new, welcome. If you've been here for a while, thank you for your continued support. Continue to help spread the word and we will talk to you guys next week on Thursday.